of Bed Stuy. You're listening to We Love Radio. Uh, in my book, that's you know, a real New My dad uh, drove me down from our uh, apartment in the Bronx where we live. Grand Central Terminal is the train station. Grand Central Station is the post office. Hey, why'd you move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today marks the start of a new series of shows we're doing on American cities on film, and we're kicking things off by looking at New York. This series will allow us to uh, not only talk about great films that defined American cinema in the, in the past century, but also allow us to talk about the, the city themselves and how they've changed over time and how they've been represented in the movies. Uh, and there's no better, no better city to start with uh, um, than New York for the, this journey we're about to go on. Uh, we've each picked three films to talk about um, to rep- that represent the city in some way. Uh, but I like to think of these films as simply the jumping off point for our conversations about New York on film. And uh, we'll no doubt touch upon many others uh, over the course of the next hour or two. Uh, but before we get into that, I'd like to start by uh, asking each of my co-hosts, what do they think of the term uh, New York on film? What, 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 what does that term mean to you? What images are created in your head when you hear that phrase? Toby, do you want to go first? Well, I think, I mean, New York has been on film for decades now in different kinds of contexts with different things happening within the city and different restrictions on who, on who can film and, and where they can film. But I think when I think of New York on film, I think the signifier is the 1970s and to a less extent the 1980s, mm-hmm. to, be, to be fair. Like movies in New York that came out in the last 20 years, I mean, I don't necessarily associate them with New York unless they're period pieces. Mm-hmm. And like the earlier New York films, some films that took place in New York, I don't really think of them as much as New York movies. Although I, I do like to, you know, watch a movie in, in the 50s and oh, this is New York. But for me, New York on film is really, and, it, and it's almost like a, a stylistic thing, like the, the 70s, the grime, the, the, the social decay, um sort of the the influx of um, african americans from the south into new york which took mm-hmm. place in in two in two waves the first wave and then the second wave after the the second world war and that really influences the way i think about new york on film i think the archetypal films are the Sidney Lumont films dog day afternoon serpico so it's uh, movies about institutions movies about mm-hmm. uh, the police force movies about um you know uh, lonely and isolated people movies about the financial system movies about the city and those movies tend to come at the time where new york was facing a a fiscal crisis and and that's really what i think about new york on film I, i i and um i think it's really the 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 actor i think about the most is is pacino Mm-hmm. these films because Pacino um, when he auditions for The Godfather uh, initially the studio didn't want him because he 
you know, he didn't look European, sort of like a Northern European enough for, you know, like an Anglo-esque actor. He was an ethnic actor and he wasn't conventionally attractive either for, for the time. You know, they wanted Rob, Robert Redford maybe to play mm-hmm. Michael Col- Colleone. But, you know, he's in, um, he's in that movie, Needle Park. Uh, he, Francis Ford Coppola sees him, brings him in, convinces the studio that, to have him in there. And, and then you get this emergence of this sort of ethnic actor and the emergence of ethnic white European New Yorkers who weren't so much on the screen before this period. And then you start to see the diversity within New York through an actor like Pacino. And the characters he plays are, you know, idiosyncratically New Yorkers, you know, like um, in the Dog Day Afternoon, he's shouting about Attica, you know, remember Attica in, in Serpico, he's dealing with the institutional corruption in the, in the, in the police force. And, and I think he becomes this sort of ethnic character who who exemplifies a lot of the frustrations and um, the characterizations of New Yorkers at the time in the city. And I think that's probably what I think of when I think of New York on film. I think of the 1970s. I think of the institutional failure of the period, the excitement of the period, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh, porn theaters and um, prostitutes and and pimps and and the black exploitation movies, the excitement of the period, the energy of the period, the hipness of the period. That's what I think of when I think of New York on on film. A, a sort of a stylistic period that was brought on by certain historical changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's really what I think of New York. I know other people would be different, but that's really what I think of when I when I hear the term. Interesting. For myself, um, I guess it's the the sprawling nature of the city and just how vast and different the city is, not only over time, but the sort of scale of the different stories that take place, even within a, a set time period, and the, the different types of stories. Be that the the gigantic action adventure type stories that take place in Manhattan that we, we see um, throughout what eighties, nineties, two thousands that are, you know, sort of popcorn genre entertainment um, things like Spider-Man, for instance, um, things like Avengers where New York is almost the default setting for the human experience. Mm-hmm. And this, this idea that, New York is the the melting pot for what humanity is and coming together and the different backgrounds of people and trying to live together and try and you know the, the give and take of what a city is and it's it's New York which is the most prime example of that the, the most the, the most prime hub that we have on this earth of people living together across this vast sprawl and it's it's the combination of of thinking of New York in the you know the, the pre-war days and you know the, the sort of once upon in once upon a time in America type um, sort of uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn uh, time and then you've got the post-war period and you know you, you've got so sort of the rise of Manhattan in, in the fifties and you've got the degeneration of of New York in, in the seventies as you were saying Toby and this institutional failure 
and then the, the sort of 80s um sort of combines the the degeneration of, of the 70s and, and and the crime wave that's still happening but with the the increase in wall street and the, the financial power of new york and then to some extent the rebirth in the 90s and 2000s where new york is once again the the most powerful place on earth and it's the place to be and of course time and time again new york has to reinvent itself be it, be it you know financial crisis or 9-11 or you know the, the changing in demographics and the, the different um the different ways the population is made up so for me it's just these constant images of you know yellow taxis and gigantic tower buildings and the people on the streets and the attitude of the people and there's an element of the attitude of the people hasn't changed even as the vastness of the city has continued to evolve and it's continued to bubble under and move about in, in different ways for me i guess that's what i think about it's this the sheer vastness of the stories that are being told and the amount of films that are out there you know you, you could probably have a podcast just about films that are made about brooklyn and that's just one of the five boroughs you know mm-hmm. It, it, for, for me it's the vastness of the stories and the, the 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 fact that you can have a film come out in you know in, in one year which is you know a comedy and tells tells the, the manhattan off at all in in the kind of the more glimmering side of new york and then you can have a film come out exactly that same year and tell a har- harrowing story of you know the the degeneration of of uh, you know income equality or, or whatever the story is about and, and yeah so so for me it's it's the sheer vastness of of New York both over a time period of this century where we've seen such evolution of what New York is and what how it's made up but also just within any given time period there are just so many stories to tell. Um, Vaughn, your your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um... Both, both of your answers are really interesting um, and have me thinking because I don't, I don't think I really think about either of those things. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, uh, there are kind of three things that come to mind for New York on film for me. One is from my own other research. Um, I immediately think of Miracle on 34th Street when I hear New York now, but I think that's just conditioning from work. Um, And that has all of the kind of connotations of grandeur and commercialism, um, the wealthy like 34th street kind of atmosphere of Macy's. And yeah, I I have that kind of like glittering image of New York around the post-war period. But Mm -hmm. then the next thing I think of um, taps into what you what you were just saying with Spider-Man and Avengers. I think of the kind of comic representation of New York that has just become so iconic in kind of our public imaginary of what New York is, um, both on screen and in comic books and reality. It's it's this image of just action and crime and grime that I guess definitely comes from these. Per- perceptions um, of 1970s New York, which we'll get more into later. But there's definitely that aspect. And then the third is um, just like really shitty (laughs) rom-coms. Love them. Big fan. Like 
made in Manhattan, get at me. It's fantastic. <laughs> I I think of those kind of like Cinderella in the city stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has its own special character. Like when Harry met Sally is such Love a it. New York film. I know that's one of your favorites, Simon. It is. It is, it, is. The, it is the whitest film ever made. But it, is, <laughs> it is. If we put that to one side, it is. I, I can confirm because I, I put it on and I immediately put it off. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I think I think it was a classic of the genre, and I, I love when Harry met Sally. But it is a very considering it came out, I think eighty nine, which was the same year as Do the Right Thing. It's mm. it's an excessively white film very, where, very where um, yes, you are telling a very white story with <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, how New York in the 90s was defined by like Friends and, um, mm. you know, other sitcoms. And it was like, yes, they're the whitest shows possible. Sorry, Vaughn, on you go. Yeah. Well, that that all kind of leads into it is the kind of outward public perception that Hollywood is pushing that we are definitely going to get into this later of the kind of glitz and glamour in the post-war period when that's not necessarily what was going on in New York and Mm -hmm. throughout the kind of seven well not necessarily 70s but 80s and onwards it's this perception of wealthier white people or comfortable middling white people just having a grand old time in the city and that's kind of the perception of New York on film that I was brought up with and Kind of secondarily, let me let me just say that I think New York on film kind of carries connotations that the story that is unfolding couldn't happen anywhere else. Mm-hmm. That New York is a plot point and a device, that it's almost a character in the film, yeah. that you can't really extract the story. When Harry Met Sally couldn't happen in another city. It's it's revolving around the density of the city and the mm-hmm. ano- anonymity in the city. Of, of just being one in several million people and feeling the kind of compulsion towards this one person. It's it, like, that's part of the story. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I really think New York on film, not necessarily every city on film, but um, this is kind of the core of what we're doing with this film series is looking at films in which the storyline couldn't really happen in another city without the same history and context and and topography of the the mm-hmm. city. Um, so New York is definitely its own distinct character, and I think for all of the reasons both of you have already said, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I guess one of the other things that comes to mind before we move on is New York seems to have this um, ingrained history of of filmmakers certainly over the past sort of forty mm. years that define it in a way maybe other cities don't so Sydney Lumet as you already mentioned Toby you've got Woody Allen you've got Martin, Scors- Martin Scorsese and you've got Spike Lee and for me those are immediately the, the first four names that spring to mind when I think of New York on film and I just constantly sort of going through uh, those sets of films in my head when I, I see certain images so um, in, in a way um, those four filmmakers in particular are very um, tell a very definitive story of certain aspects of New York in certain uh, times. Do period. you know what I think is because you guys have had more wider scope when you're dealing with New York than than, than I have. And what mm-hmm. I think is, I think even New Yorkers feel, and you you get this with sort of like New Yorkers who are maybe like over the age of fifty, will they reminisce about the the eighties? Mm. And they'll be like, you know, um, it, it just isn't New York, just isn't New York anymore. And like New York is 
post Giuliani, it's you know New York's become like Disneyland. Yeah, um, there's been an, an intense amount of investment in this in the city, and it's changed. And so there's this latent idea, which obviously isn't comprehensive at all. It, it may just it, it there's a fact that it isn't, but there's a latent idea that this is idea of New York, New York that's been lost. And that that New York is is something that is part of the self conception of many New Yorkers, some boomers, and you know some people who are still alive about what New York is. Hmm. And I, but it it is it is part of a broader story of 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 New York. I think mm. absolutely. That's, that's um, really interesting. That has me thinking has New York ever really had a, a character or are they always saying it's not New York anymore yeah. because there's always something kind of missing because that that's a huge trope in a lot of American kind of identity is like this isn't us or the like where have we gone or like yep something yep. is missing from what the character is now but I think that's a very consistent kind of feeling especially with New York that again we'll talk about Absolutely. um yeah, it's it's almost like oh, uh, New York is this thing. What actually? No, Robert Moses is introducing urban renewal and, and changing the city's topography. Mm-hmm. And now, well, okay, now there's a fiscal crisis, so people are like, well, let's leave because New York isn't what it used to be. And mm-hmm. now there's more African Americans, and um, and the, there's also a fiscal crisis. But then in the 80s, when the fiscal crisis ends and, and uh, more investment comes in New York and then into the 90s, some people are like, wait, that New York of the 70s and 80s is actually what New York is. Mm-hmm. It isn't this. So people are constantly dealing with how New York is changing yeah. and, um, and then finding that maybe they can't attach themselves to a contemporary sense of New York or an older sense of New York. And they're all, you know, New York is, it's so slippery mm-hmm. as an idea and as, as an ideal, but like any other culture or any other um, sort of just identity, there are things that people f- fixate on. Not everyone fixates on, but maybe come out above other other ideas or other visions or other voices in what defines a place and i and i think that in new york particularly but as in any anywhere else in america there's there's always going to be that tension yeah absolutely right um we should probably move on von before we um get on to the individual films that we've we've picked and we'll talk about you've kindly put together a kind of skeleton history of new york in the was it sort of post-war new york uh, up to up to today is that sort of roughly the time period we're looking at with this yes very roughly um and as you said it is very skeletal um i promise i'm missing things but this is very difficult to sum up in hopefully yes. only a couple minutes. I, I, I asked Vaughn very kindly to put something together simply so the audience would, if they didn't know certain aspects of New York history, they'd at least have something to, to grab hold of prior to us talking about the films. So I gave yeah. Vaughn an impossible task. An and... impossible task, I was going to say. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so yes, blame me if anything gets left out because it was an mm-hmm. impossible task. But yeah. Vaughn will no doubt do brilliant as she always does except when she gets um, praised. That's the only thing she can uh, suffer with. Everything, everything else she does well with, but praise not so much. Vaughn, be excellent and on you go. 
Right, this is your fault. Okay, so <laughs> history of New York, um, starting in the immediate post-war from 1946 onwards um, through the late 40s, there's an immediate kind of crisis of this influx of people coming back from the war, um, influx of immigrants. There are women in workplaces and New York has to, the whole country, but specifically New York has to kind of figure out what the new gender role is and where people are gonna live and do women leave work or are women allowed to be in careers? And there are so many crises of just personal and public identity in the immediate post-war um, period. There's this massive housing shortage that led to a lot of legislation, both on state and federal levels, um, working towards pumping money back into infrastructure and building new, um, new uh, housing developments, both within the city and very importantly in the suburbs. Um, as with any kind of suburban market influx, this is leading into the 1950s and um, throughout the whole decade really in, emerging into the age of affluence of the 1950s when the economy really starts to recover after the war and starts booming um, in the mid 50s onwards. The suburban market is growing outside of New York and that brings people who were living and working within the city to living outside of it and just commuting in. Those people are predominantly um, white and wealthier so that, that uh, kind of flux of personal wealth out of the city. These people who were living there and shopping there and spending their money on local economy have now left and are now funding a different economy in the suburbs outside of the city. So this is going to become very important in the immediate or in the following decades um, that we will get to. But in the 50s, there's kind of a shift happening within New York that Manhattan is starting to emerge as the most important area. And of course, it always was very important to New York, but so were other boroughs. Um, Manhattan was kind of a center of like shipbuilding. New York was a center of shipbuilding and ports and trade and commerce. Uh, for so long, and especially garment, the, the garment industry was very important in New York. Um, and as these kind of economic changes are happening through the 50s, you, we start to see New York changing into a more industrial, uh, a corporatized um, center. You have kind of the legal and educational opportunities that are being funded in New York. A lot of, a lot more public universities um, are getting more funding and you have a kind of change of demographics from people moving out to the suburbs and younger students moving into New York. So with Manhattan kind of growing, the UN moves their headquarters from Queens to Manhattan in 1951 and brings with it all of these ideas that I've just said of um, the kind of more cosmopolitan in quotes 
aspects of New York emerging in this period, much more than it as a quote, metropolitan center. Um, it gains this kind of reputation for education and tourism and commercialism in the 1950s and early, very early 60s, uh, much more than it ever had before. So that's kind of the 50s of New York. Moving into the 60s, we see some of those urban renewal programs of the late 40s and 50s start to decline. And the 60s bring with it the kind of turbulence of the civil rights movement and Vietnam escalating and the Cold War escalations. In New York, you get um, the kind of centers of counterculture emerging even more in the village this time, whereas before the war and through the depression in earlier years, um, the other boroughs were also important in this. You have the Harlem Renaissance um, early on, earlier on, for example. But a lot of counterculture is centering around generally white people living in the village in the 60s. And this brings out um, a kind of cultural idea of New York as white beatniks and that kind of underground culture of the 60s that is so kind of like quote unquote iconic. Um, but in the 60s, you also have, as you do in most American cities, um, rampant uh, police brutality and quote race riots. You have activism from marginalized communities that rise up and groups such as the Black Panthers who are forming kind of internal communities while organizing rent strikes and demanding for development and infrastructural kind of reform for the more impoverished neighborhoods. Um, especially as the city starts defunding these urban renewal programs with so much of the wealth having gone out to the suburbs, as I said, in the 50s, the, the city starts to almost give up on the lived areas of New York because that's not where the money is anymore. Um, so they're putting money more into Wall Street that has been kind of developing through the 40s and 50s, kind of establishing itself as this um, international important, internationally important kind of center of commerce and putting New York even further on the map um, on a global scale like that. This, the city stops funding lived experience in the city, in quotes, um, and funnels it much more into tourism and the financial district. This leads to what both of you have already said about the 70s, um, increased crime rates and uh, the, what do I wanna say? The um, almost crime-ridden like Gotham-esque view of New York, that it's grittier and grimier. And this kind of falls in line with Nixon's demands for law and order. Um, it's the whole image of New York as like a center of police corruption and violence and petty crimes such as theft um, kind of gains this, this perception of lawlessness. And you get phrases like concrete jungle uh, start to be describing New York much more in the mainstream 
as this kind of soulless landscape of industry and also high density population with no real um, compassion for the people who live there and work there. So New York by the 1970s is almost a relic of history. Um, it becomes kind of a vestige of itself that ironically mirrors the kind of conditions of the moneyless, densely packed immigrant repository of the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, for people familiar with the, the uh, photo essay, How the Other Half Lives from 1890, Jacob Reese, it's a collection of these images of immigrants living so densely packed in late 19th century New York. And that kind of character of New York is very similar to the more updated 1970s image of, of what actually living in New York was. So by 1975, um, there's this financial crisis that, that you both mentioned. Um, the city actually narrowly avoids bankruptcy um, with a federal loan and debt restructuring because that's, that's how America works. Cities can go bankrupt. Um, in 1977, there's a rolling blackout in New York that causes riots and kind of solidifies this perception of it's just this lost wasteland. In 1977, um, Mayor Ed Koch was um, running, he was running for mayor and he campaigned on this kind of platform of law and order. Even though he was a Democrat, he ran right of the kind of law and order candidates and he won. And he became the mayor through, I believe, 78 to 89. So entering the 80s, we get the, the Reagan era. Um, we do have the rebirth of Wall Street, as you mentioned. There's a bit of an influx of wealth back into the financial district that was kind of lost through the 70s. Um, that brings with it demand for investment into the city after so much decay of the lived experience in New York through, through the 60s and 70s. So by the end of the, the decade, um, Mayor Cook was, um, he was both cutting taxes and also cutting spending by reducing the number of federal employees in the city and investing back into housing renewal. So that's, that's kind of the economic side of the 80s, but you, for, for the city itself, but for the actual people, it's the Reagan era. So of course we get that kind of heralded Reagan image of the welfare queen. Um, this gets transposed onto lower income marginalized communities in New York, kind of painting them as exploiters of the system and drug addicts and grifters which just further entrenched the systemic racism towards people of color and a structural hatred of the impoverished. Um, you get the, the war on drugs and it really targets these, these communities that are not, as we have said, the When Harry Met Sally white people of New York. So leading into the 1990s, 
you get some focus back on urban renewal and investment into minority communities, especially in Harlem and the Bronx and a bit in Brooklyn. Um, We're definitely going to touch on this a bit more throughout, but there's a celebration of cultures from these neighborhoods branching into the mainstream in massive ways that they haven't really before since about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, And that shifts the focus of kind of the perception of New York away from Manhattan for the first time since about pre-war onto New York as a whole, including Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx and Harlem. So by the late 90s, we get massive gentrification um, just on an extreme scale. You get the the meatpacking district and Chelsea in Manhattan and also Williamsburg in Brooklyn becoming these like quote unquote cultural centers that are rehabilitated, um, abandoned former industrial areas of the city. And that draws in a lot of the middle and upper class white youth back into the city, which changes the character and the image of New York again. Um, Like you said, Simon, the kind of friends New York is this late 90s period of gentrification. Uh, There's also in the late 90s, a small boom in New York, um, breaking into the internet age with the quote, Silicon Alley in um, the Flatiron District. And then by 2000, in the 2000 census, New York had hit an all time high for population, especially kind of concentrated in Manhattan again. Um, It's steadily been growing since then. So now in the 21st century, we obviously had um, 9-11, the attacks on the World Trade Center, uh, which ignited this kind of new perception of citywide pride um, in an attempt to kind of be as intersectional as possible, I guess, that that they they wanted New York to be one New York. Um, and out of this, we kind of get to this almost stagnated New York of, um, at least on film, as, as you both kind of mentioned, that there isn't really a character that we can ascribe to New York for the, the last 20 years since 9-11, um, apart from this New York pride kind of moment. So I think that brings us up to date for the most part. Is there anything that anything major I missed that you guys want to throw in there? Oh, I was, no, absolutely not. It was comprehensive. Yeah, I was going to say, Vaughn, I was expecting you to be good as you always are, but that was absolutely fantastic. So thank you. I agree. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Let's get that, into some films then. That was excellent. And I think that really sets sets thank the you. scene for people um, and, for, and for us, to be honest. Um about about what New York kind of over the last seven years or so has, has been so that, that's fantastic um so yes films that's why we're here we've got three films each and the chronological nature of them actually sort of breaks out quite nicely as far as being able to go through uh, one at a time um mm-hmm. so 
as far as this is concerned, I guess we should just go with um, the first person um, who, who whose film is on the list, and that would be you, Vaughn, with the film from 1954. Uh, do you want to introduce what the film is, tell us a little bit about it, and then let us know why you picked it? Yes. So for my first film, I picked a film that is not filmed in New York. Um, I chose Rear Window, um, starring Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly uh, from 1954, as you said. It was actually filmed on a studio lot in L.A., but the entire kind of setting of Rear Window is Jimmy Stewart's apartment and out of his window. And there's a very like sliver of a corner that you see a couple times. Um, so it's something that could be done on a, a set lot. But I do think that it captures a lot of the kind of dense nature of New York in the 1950s. Um, and it captures a kind of character of New York that there are so many people living in such close proximity of each other. Um, Oh, I should probably do the plot. The plot of it is that Jimmy Stewart has broken his leg. He's a photographer for, um, he's a journalist, a journalistic photographer. Uh, he was a war photographer, like um, with, with the kind of journalist units like Cronkite, who we talked about last week or two weeks ago. And he's broken his leg. He's stuck in his house for six weeks or so. And he's people watching out his window. And one day he notices that one of his neighbors seems to have murdered his wife. And he builds this whole kind of conspiracy theory about his neighbor and drags other people into it and gets his private eye friend um, to kind of help investigate. Ultimately, he's right because he's Jimmy Stewart, so of course he's going to be right. And yeah, it, it but it captures this um, perception of New York as there's an anonymity to it, but everyone's also in each other's business. And I think it's, it just seems quite a classic view of New York, that that you can be nobody and still other people know who you are. I think that's that's how I feel about it. That's why I chose this one. I, I None of that was coherent. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. I mean, this idea of uh, a New York, you know, the close intimate nature of the people mm -hmm. living together. Um, I hadn't actually seen the film until I watched it the other night. Um, and it, it, it definitely takes you into this sort of close-knit nature of New York and this yeah. idea of sort of people just living on top of each other and the little dog in the basket that gets sort of um, yeah. whirled up and down with the, I don't know how you'd best describe it, there's a sort of pulley system to, to transport the dog up and down so it can... Uh, rummage around in the sort of the garden area um and it's in it's set in greenwich village which is a very very sort of white middle class version of of greenwich village by the looks of it um mm -hmm. uh, people having dinner parties obviously Vaughn, you talked about it in the 60s we get the sort of beatneck version of 
of Greenwich Village. Um, th- this still feels like very studio system version of of New York, uh, and what, what be the sort of hustle and bustle of New York. And I think what what's interesting is you have this film come out in in fifty four. I think in fifty seven you get Twelve Angry Men. Um, later in uh, eighteen nine you get Do the Right Thing, and you have other films throughout New York where one of the plot points is it's like the hottest day of the year and it's this heat mm-hmm. and it's this rubbing up against you know one another and it's people having to live in close uh, proximity of each other in this you know pavement drenched city where you're you're just you, you can't move for the sort of sticky nature of yourself and the other people around you and it's sort of high, high, the heightening of, of emotion and of, of, of actions by people and you, you definitely get that with Rear Window and of course the fact it's a it's a crime story it's you know it's this this idea of has has a crime being committed and is this amateur sleuth going to get to the bottom of it which lends itself very well to new york with this idea of voyeurism and of people watching each other and uh, of just being on top of each other and so even though you know you're not going out and you're seeing you know you're not getting grand sweeping shots of the statue of liberty or the twin towers or anything like that you you get very much very quickly this idea that you're in new york and that you're surrounded by new yorkers even if it is a a a more sort of white um studio system version of new york as you would expect from hollywood in the 50s i guess yeah i think that's that's kind of one of the most um compelling things about it is that the the setting is just really a courtyard in width um but there's so many different apartments that you can see into and there's a ballerina practicing in her her living room who's hosting parties but really waiting for her army boyfriend to come home and there's a lonely woman um who lives alone and ultimately she's about to commit suicide but she hears from across the courtyard one of their neighbors playing the piano and the music stops her Mm-hmm. And there's there are these cu- there's this married couple who are constantly having sex throughout it, <laughs> which is hilarious. That all of those bits are great, um, and it's just kind of this diversity of there's loneliness, but it's also a community. Um, the little dog is strangled and killed, and the owner of the dog is crying throughout the courtyard. Um, she's quote neighbors like each other speak to each other care if each other live or die um and she says that the dog was the only one in this whole neighborhood who liked anybody Mm. and it it captures that kind of moment of the loneliness and the anonymity of new york but then the scene very swiftly afterwards is of this woman about to commit suicide and she stops because of her neighbor it it's this kind of like push and pull of of that that I don't even know how to describe it. It just seems so New York to me. This this mm-hmm. anonymity and and loneliness, but also this densely packed community that's bustling. Yeah, it's it, it's just a very kind of magical thing for me. I think it's very impressive how they do do all of this in just the width of a courtyard for their set. Yeah, I, I guess something like the term alone in a crowd basically sums up certain uh, experiences yeah. of New York 
and, and I suppose you, you get that with some of the characters you, you see who are so tightly packed together and yet they are at times living their completely separate lives from all the other people around them. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have eight other films to go through and I'm aware that we've already spoken for a fair bit. So I, I don't know how long we want to spend on each film. Um, yeah, do you guys do you guys want to talk any more about Rear Window? Shall we move on to the next film? Do we want to talk about anything else around this? Or do we want to... Yeah, let's move on. Next movie. How do you want to proceed? Yeah. Okay, if, we, if we're moving on then, and obviously we'll, we'll touch back on these films later on, um, the next film would be Toby's Choice, which is from 1961. Uh, so Toby, if you want to introduce the, the film, tell us a little bit about the, the story and uh, tell us why you picked it. Yeah, the, the film is uh, Breakfast in Tiffany's. It was originally a novella by Truman Capote, who was one of the sort of, he was a novelist, but also one of the new journalism progenitors um, from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And um, it's sort of, the novel was originally a cautionary tale about sort of a young woman um, from the country going into the city not knowing what she wanted but living as a sort of almost like a a high status prostitute and um meeting Paul and then um eventually sort of finding her way through this uh this difficult story that takes place in the uh, in the movie and um the reason why I picked um, this particular film is because it's a sort of archetypal New York story again, uh, like many of the others. Uh, you know, in, in in sort of the in this in the way of Rare Window, you know, this person comes to the city, doesn't really know anyone in the city. Holly Golightly's actual backstory is very, very sort of country. She's she she was actually an orphan with her her brother Fred. They were found by this guy Doc and brought into their family, and she became a, a child bride. And then she runs off to Hollywood to try to f- find glamour and fame, and and ends up in New York to basically try to climb the the social ladder. And so she, in Truman Capote's story, it's more, I don't know, it, it's, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale, but the film's depiction of it is, is sort of a young girl who is not ready to settle in life and just wants to explore the things that are available to her. And being that she's in the city, her class background, her social background, Aren't these aren't these aren't particularly important? The fact that she's attractive, the fact that she likes nice things, the fact that she's extroverted, that she she talks to um, a number of different men, even some of them criminals, a um, number of high status men creates these parties, these parties where high status people come and talk and mingle. It's it's sort of this idea in New York that you can recreate yourself, um, uh, sort of recreation, self-creation. This idea that the the old traditions that were you know in your past 
don't really have to affect the lives that you live. And I think that the story is endearing, especially for young women who want to come to New York, but want to come to any major city and, and sort of make a life for themselves that they couldn't aspire to from the backgrounds that they came from. I think, again, I had only seen parts of this film. Um, I don't think I'd ever actually watched the whole film in one go until we, um, until Toby chose this and I ended up watching it. And I think one of the things that you get from this film is this idea of people coming to New York to be new people. And mm-hmm. we, we get that with the main character and her shedding this previous life and then that previous life following her and having to sort that out and it's this theme we see see over and over again in film and tv where it's you get off a bus you arrive in new york and you can become a new person and you can reinvent yourself and you can reinvent the life that you want to to lead and even the the sort of type of person you are to to those around you and it was a uh, you know some of the stuff in in the film hasn't aged so well you know there's yeah. just awful racism which is just so terrible it's hard to get your head around um the film was ever made uh, or that, that aspect of the film was ever made with regards to the uh, the asian character who's played by mickey rooney i believe which is just mm-hmm. it just punctuates the film and you're just like oh god please make a stop uh, and then there's the other aspect, Toby, which you touched on, which is this idea of a 14 year old bride um, out in the uh, out in the middle of America, and then moving away from that. And again, that that's kind of hard to get your head around this this idea of this mm-hmm. old older I don't know like 50 60 year old bloke or whatever it was who was married to a 14 year old, and it's just it made my skin shiver, I have to say. But yeah, um, it's it's certainly it is strange, and it is from a different world but then i don't know like this doc character he comes back originally paul vajak who's um the um who's the second main character sees Mm -hmm. uh him outside and thinks that the woman he's sleeping with maybe her husband Mm -hmm. uh, is is stalking him or has some private investigator stalking him and they he leaves the the hotel goes to a park and talks to, and interacts with this guy. And the guy says, well, you know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm Holly's husband. And then when Holly actually meets him, it's very, very endearing. And I think mm-hmm. it, it has a lot to do with the writing because he doesn't come in and, you know, sort of like, you know, punch her in the face and then <laughs> yeah. drag her back to bumfuck, whatever they can <laughs> <laughs> Um, he he just, just sort of says, "Oh, you know, you 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 you're skinny, and mm-hmm. you know things are difficult back home, and maybe you want to come back." And he's he's sort of he's he's in love with her, but he also see feels seems to um, think that he has a responsibility over her, and, and that, that you know, and as you say, like she belongs to him. But there is this, I don't know, he comes across as a human character. Yeah. And and then and the end when you know when she decides to not go back, which is a, a you know a good decision and a strong mm-hmm. strong decision, it does seem like something that could have happened between two human beings, yeah. two people who weren't necessarily you know like um, people who weren't necessarily bad people. Maybe they 
were attached to ideas that were wrong in that particular time. But, you know, people, yeah. it, it feels like a really human story. I, I, I would agree. Yeah, and I, and I so so, but yeah, I, absolutely. Like it is, it is um, the idea of a child bride, um, the idea of taking an orphan and, and then marrying the orphan, yeah. also, and then also um, trying to play off the the the, the Fred thing. So I'm not going to have Fred come back and stay with us if you don't come back with me again. This is yeah, it's yeah. But again, it's it's sort of like I don't know. There's there's something really there's something really endearing about. Uh, that that whole interaction because of because of the, the writing, and there is a little bit of a wonderlust lust about it because when she was back there, she was uh, Lula May and she was mm-hmm. she was extroverted as she is in New York, and she was nice to talk to, and she was bright, and she was attractive, and she made everyone happy, and they want her back, but she she can't go back because she doesn't want to be attached to anything. So yeah, I don't know. It's um, I think it's really there's really I think the movie is really really well written. I think the romance between Paul and Holly that sort of bubbles throughout the movie. Initially, he comes in, he meets her. Um, she's she's a little bit indifferent to him, but then they they bond um, over her relationships with other other men at the party. She looks at two guys. One's a sort of Brazilian politician. The other guy's like a, a, a sort of overweight rich guy. And she picks the overweight rich guy because she knows that he's wealthy, and um, and but he's and then Paul is is like he's falling in love with her while he's also wrapped up with this rich older woman, and 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 in some ways like the the romance is a little bit cynical because uh, Holly really wants to use these men in order to become wealthy, and mm-hmm. he's using that lady so that she can sponsor his writing career because he has to, it's difficult to get his writing career off. And neither of them is really in a position where they can fall in love with each other and sort of um, get into a relationship with each other because neither of them thinks that they can offer that much to the other person, mm-hmm. which, is, which is really difficult throughout the movie. And I think the way in the end that they finally come together and after uh, one of the guys that she was um, dating uh, goes to prison, and the, and then another one of the guys, the the Brazilian guy, um, he doesn't want anything to do with her because she's she's um, having some difficulty with the law. There's a real sense that an authentic romance is built up. Some that's something that was built up through. Um, people having a uh, a deep and lasting interaction with each other, instead of the more sort of cynical and um, you know uh, uh, sort of engagement with relationships that both of them were having previously. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good movie. I think it's a good um, romantic story. I think it's it's quite naturalistic um, in that way as well. And I think it, it, it's really a, a, a New York story because New York, especially in, in this time, as uh, Vaughn has said, you know, that the economy was was doing well. Still at this time, you still had um, a lot number of the sort of manufacturing industries uh, within the city and uh, Manhattan's becoming more and more important. They go off to Tiffany's and um, they, they want to buy something in Tiffany. She really likes Tiffany's. 
but they can't. But the guy behind the counter, and it's always the same thing. Is like he he works in a store, but he's like from some sort of strange upper middle class yeah. backgrounds that the. Um, for, for some reason that, that, that and he looks at them as like you know you guys can't really afford to even get any, anything engraved in, in in tiffany's and it's sort of this interaction between uh you know someone who's on the on the make who wants to make something of themselves who wants to be in tiffany's who wants to use other people to get there as vectors and then develops this sort of natural authentic relationship with another with another person but again you know, even at the end of the movie, when they're in the car with each other, um, and um, and uh, Paul is telling Holly that he loves her, and Holly's like, "Well, you you know, you can't, you know, you can't cage me, and uh, no one belongs to anybody," and 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 a lot of these ideas are going to become more and more important, not only in cities but you know, just in in the wider American landscape, mm-hmm. especially for people in their in their twenties. As people get, you know, people develop relationships a little bit later or get married a little bit later. But then there is also the sense that there is an inevitable, you know, I I don't, you know, I think Truman Capote wanted to show that Hawley was a wrong person, that she was misguided. But I think the movie gets it across that she is an independent individual, but in the end, she's come to a decision to get into a relationship with someone and and i think it is a a rallying cry to independent young women moving to a city and trying to make something of themselves you know irrespective of what they do even if they're you know the sleeping with rich men or whatever it's just you know it's just it's i think it's i think it's a really good movie and i think um you know i i can i can understand why many people are inspired by it and many people connect it with new york city uh, two very quick things then, Vaughn. I'll just ask if you anything else you want to add to that. One, how dare she abandon the cat? So fuck her. Right. Uh, yeah. Um. Uh. And second, it's a, a really good Manhattan Manhattan film as well. Uh, as you were saying, Toby, this idea of kind of setting you in Manhattan, and we don't have the income equality we have kind of later on in New York. We, it's not represented in the film to a great extent, but you are very much sort of sat down in manhattan and you know you get to see the, the beautiful shops that you know she stares through the window and you also get this um this theme which you talked about toby which was uh, i think some i can't remember the name of the L- lcd sound system song but there's a lyric that goes new york's great if you got someone else to pay for it kind of thing and <laughs> yeah. it, it's it's this theme which you know we talk about now you know it'll be, be great to live in new york but you know if you had a rich father to pay for it that, that'd be much better rather than the actual reality of of uh, sort of living with t- 12 other people and uh, having to work 70 hours a week. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess that that's a, a good theme to kind of establish earlier, this idea of, you know, these two people, young, attractive people who are essentially getting their lived-in experience paid for by by, uh, by other people um, and by the uh, the, uh, the spend, you know, of uh, be, it, be it an older woman who, who has money, who can... Who can pay for his writing lifestyle or the, the various men in in the uh the, the woman's life uh Vaughn is there anything you'd like to add on uh Breakfast at Tiffany's um yeah real quickly um one is you guys would be surprised how rampant child marriage is in the 50s um mm-hmm. I'm writing a chapter on that right now and that fun it's <laughs> very unsettling um 
And actually, when I rewatched Breakfast at Tiffany's this week, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that was like <laughs> most of the plot. Um, but I actually can't stand Breakfast at Tiffany's. I Interesting. I don't see it as inspirational. I see it as very kind of shutting her down from her independent lifestyle because she's kind of painted as a train wreck that everybody like her her um, manager or agent or something he mm-hmm. says like she's such a phony but she's a real phony because yeah, she, believes she actually phony. believes her phoniness um, and he says it multiple times throughout the film and people just look down on her a lot yeah. as she's just this aloof kind of she has these grand dreams of bagging a rich husband but she's never going to do it and then she ultimately doesn't and mm-hmm. she ultimately ends up with Paul who treats her I think treats her a lot worse than Doc did with like child bride aside mm-hmm. we'll go with just the movie's mechanics of their relationships Doc never really threatens her as you said Toby of like I own you and therefore you're you come home with me but Paul repeatedly says I own you you belong to me because I love you yeah and that, she's like what should that movie. matter what should that matter that you love me and he's like what do you mean what does it matter and he gets aggressive with her and I'm like I don't like this movie <laughs> it, it is it, really it was, I was gonna say it was kind of shocking like the, the dialogue towards the end of the film where it's like yeah people don't, it's aggressive people don't own other people and it's like of course of course they do if you love them and all this kind of stuff and it's like oof, that but but i think i think the difficulty with that is that in that scene that person i mean i know like what what you have to think oh what is the director trying to express and then what is the person saying i think that you have to say that that person is in love with 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 holly and like he's in love with her No, no 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 i'm not just saying that you know that means that he should possess her mm-hmm. because I don't, th- I don't know if, if the movie is saying that oh, because he's in love with her, you should possess her, but he's in love with her. And if you're in love with someone, you probably think, you know, it might be short term that if that person leaves you, that you're, you know, something bad is going to happen to you or, or it, there is a possessiveness to it, but it, but then she fights back against that. And she says that no one belongs to anybody, which is true. But the reason yeah. they come together isn't because, you know, uh, they belong to each other. It's because they develop this relationship with each other in the movie. But but I think I agree. I think I agree with uh, your interpretation, Vaughn, to an extent, because I think that's what Truma Capote wanted to express. Mm. Uh, he wanted to express that that Holly was a bad person. Yeah. Right. Um, shall we move on? <laughs> Yeah, that's the 60s. Next. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay, so the n- next film is actually My Choice, which comes from 1973 and is Serpico, uh, which is a film made by Sidney Lumet and stars Al Pacino. Yeah, the soundtrack um, of this movie is just... It's, <laughs> it's, it's strange because I don't think it, it matches the themes of the film, mm-hmm. but it's just so wonderful. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, go on, go on. So um, this is uh, a, a true story for, for the most part. Obviously, there are, are certain uh, 
the liberties that they, they take with the story. But the, the, the central character, Frank Serpical, was a real character who um, was a police officer in, I think he's 59, he first became a police officer and then throughout the 60s, and then the film came out in 73, at which point he'd, he'd left uh, service. And it's him battling against the corruption within the NYPD. Um, we ultimately have um, him um, speaking at the, the NAP Commission, which was... Um, um, a commission put together uh, investigating the corruption within the NYPD and uh, Frank Serpico became very famous because of this and and throughout the film you, you get this journey of a character who has has a core belief that you know he wants to do the right thing and he you know he, he's completely against the, the corruption the, the bribery that is uh, taking place on just a sort of casual basis there's so much racism and violence held by uh, just everyday police officers against the people they're arresting and the people they're around um there's a scene where uh, there, there's a, a call in for for a, a rape and um his partner's just like you know well whatever it's like in a someone else will deal with it kind of thing and you know he immediately uh frank serpico immediately you know goes after it and um he is you know he apprehends apprehends one of the assailants and um when they, they take the character back to to uh to um query this person you know the the, the rest of the officers are assaulting this uh this person rather than just you know trying to communicate with them and <laughs> do as you would ex you would hope would be a normal investigation into getting the other perpetrators in in this rape um in the end frank circle um talks to this this person and, and gets gets the name of the the other other suspects uh, in a kind of more calm and normal fashion but it throughout the film we see Al Pacino's uh, Serpico being this plain um, clothes policeman who um, moves about the different um, different uh, boroughs of New York um, as, as far as where he's working and everywhere he goes he, he faces he faces this corruption regardless of whether he's in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Manhattan it's just relentless with the bribery and the, the payoffs and just the, the the sheer widespread nature of it and nothing can get done and he feels he, he can't talk to anyone in power because no he keeps getting knocked back and in the end he um he contributes to a a, a, a new york times article on this and that sort of speed things up and as i say we get we get the the nap commission but the start of the film we actually see uh, frank serpico uh, trying to uh bust into a um an apartment um where i think there's a drug deal going down and he ends up getting shot and we, we learn later on that the, the reason um he he gets shot in, in the face or is because his backup intentionally fails to kind of follow him in and, and help him and um he's kind of left to die but he he survives and i think he ends up with a bullet fragments in his in, in his brain and i think he went deaf in, in one ear but he, he thankfully survived so it's this really compelling story and it, it, it works really well as a what new york was like um and what the M nypd was like during this time and when i was thinking of films i wanted to do i was first of all i was thinking kind of in scope 
over over time you know 50 60 70 trying trying to piece together what time periods i wanted to go with and in the end i eventually try and try to think of it more on a sort of genre level and so i wanted to do something that was a crime or an institution film and serpico was just a great example of of you know we get a lot of institutional films from Sidney Lumet you know be that 12 angry men or be that dog day afternoon and then Serpico is a great example of that of these institutions and, and their failures and people coming up against that failure and this came out in 73 which is just as you know New York is really starting to fall fall apart and a couple of years later we have the, the famous headline of uh Gerald Ford saying, you know, New York can go screw itself, um, you know, he left to die. And then by the by the late 70s and 80s, the, the films of, of New York are depicting this this nightmare. So you've got you've got things like the, the Warriors, which came out in 79, which is this street, the, this city filled with street gangs. And then by, I think it was 81, I think it is, um, you've got Escape from New York, um, which is basically set in 1997 where they're portraying in New York as this maximum security prison where the city itself has completely fallen and it's now just a prison in which the most dangerous criminals are housed. And so throughout the, the 70s and 80s, you get this depiction of New York falling apart. But I think what's interesting about Serpical is that you, you really see this this time period of, of the late 50s up to this or early to mid 70s and some of the transformations that happen and some of just the sheer corruption within the NYPD and then that sort of set from a time period that sort of sets us up nicely with the New York that we see later and we'll talk about in some other films where New York really has it has fallen away from the the Manhattan off Breakfast at Tiffany's to the, the lawlessness that, that will come in later in on New York on film and so A. Serpico is a I, I think a really good film made by a great filmmaker and a great actor and so there's an element of it just being kind of iconic in that sense but the fact it's a true story and the, the fact that you, you get uh, some insight into the, the terrible corrupt nature of the NYPD um, and it sort of sets sets some of the tone that we have for New York on film moving forward I think it's a, I, I, I think it's A, a really good film and I think it's an important film for what comes after it um do you guys have any thoughts on the film yeah i, I mean i absolutely agree with you i mean Ma- malcolm gladwell's has this um typology of types of uh, law and order uh films and tv shows where he says like a, a western takes place in a world in which there's no law and order and a man shows up and imposes personally law and order of the territory and the community but an eastern is a story where there is law and order so there is an uh, there are institutions of justice, but they have been subverted by people from within, and I think that um, Sing Lumet makes Easterns. Hmm. I mean, is Eastern obviously it's it's the Eastern uh, part of the United States. It's New York, and he he makes movies where you know like someone like Pacino, he's within the institution. Uh, he's he's developed as a as a cop, and then he recognizes some failures, and they're they're not just personal failures on the parts of the mm-hmm. police officers who are letting drug dealers get away with with things and taking you know, money from you know it's you know he meets cool. some cops that the, uh, he's driving with and they are really suspicious of him because he's not on the take you know but it's not just the individuals it's it's the whole it's, it's the parts of the institution 
so Serpico meets some good cops. Um, uh, there's this cop with the a, a bow tie. He was mm-hmm. more sort yeah. of um, he's more of an authority figure, and, and he's a little bit of a guy who helps Serpico along. He he helps him with the investigation, but he he also wants it to be internal. But if you keep the investigation internal, eventually it's going to dissipate because there's higher ups like the chief of police who want to sort of make sure that people don't know about the corruption and seems to feel like the corruption is just part of, you know, the, the price of doing business in New York. But some people in the institution are, want to correct the institution. And, and I, I think I think in the end, Lumet comes up as a liberal, like he's a liberal He's someone who thinks that institutions, um, although they're problems with individuals and the problems with institutions, they can be fixed by by people. They can be fixed by Pacino. They can be fixed by Henry Fonza. You know, when they're <laughs> in uh, Twelve Angry well, Men, man. when they're you know arguing. You know, some people have prejudices against this um, sort of immigrant who's supposed to commit this crime, but um, good men within the bad institutions can still get people to good solutions and i think that's it's and it and and one one last thing i'm going to leave you with it's like it's different from the western and even the western um supplanted into a city like take for example dirty harry or mm-hmm. other uh kind of either it's like slightly fascistic movies about cities that have gone wrong where like in dirty harry um clint eastwood just executes these people like these black people uh, and then he executes a rapist as well. And that rapist in that movie, he's not even human. It's like almost like someone who's like crawling around on all fours. Uh, you know, and, and it's the same thing with uh, Charles Bronson as well in, in his movies where, you know, there is no law and order and uh, one good guy from outside has to just execute people. But this is, you know, it's a liberal take. There is, there is law and order. It can be achieved. The institutions are wrong, but they can be fixed. So it's, it's, it looks at the problem sociologically and tries to solve the problems. And I, I, and I, and I think that's why it's really, it's a really good film. And Lumet was really good at, at doing this. Uh, Vaughn, your thoughts? I believe you hadn't seen the film before, um, before I picked it, and you'd uh, watched it in advance of the podcast. Yeah, I had not seen it. Um, I agree with everything both of you just said. And really the only thing to add is that um, I'll admit that I yelled at Simon because I thought he was making me watch a film about praising cops and a cop hero. And (laughs) it is not that. So it's a really good film. I really enjoyed it. And it definitely exposes a lot of the corruption that that we've been talking about in New York in the 70s and this kind of downward spin Mm -hmm. towards lawlessness, quote unquote lawlessness and the kind of grimier, Gotham kind of perception of New York. You shouting at me is not really that. that I mean, that's a pretty daily occurrence, to be honest. But oh, it uh, absolutely is. But about this specifically. In this. Specific- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. Okay, so that gets us into seventies New York, um, mm-hmm. which um, Toby, I think, would be your your choice next, which was, um, I believe, in seventy six. Your film came out. Yeah, mm-hmm. Taxi Driver. Um, mm-hmm. 1976, as um, I mentioned on this podcast, the, it's 200 years after uh, 1776. And 
a year that many people thought was the nadir of the American experience. And uh, I think you do, you do get that sense in uh, Taxi Driver, as both of you have mentioned, you know, there's, a, there's an economic crisis in, in New York. Um, there's a handover from the New York public institutions towards a financial board who gets to decide um, you know, what by bankers who get to decide like uh, what uh, finances in New York are spent on. There's a, there's a fiscal crisis and then there's a, uh, there's a, uh, there's a sort of retrenchment of finances for public services by these bankers who take over the, the, the New York government during the ABME um, mayority. And so what you get, as we mentioned before, is this, this sort of African-American population came in the 60s and uh, the 70s, but now who don't have any jobs, you know, they don't have any jobs. And, you know, New York in the 50s, for, for all of its problems, for, for its forefronting of white people in films and in society, it was developing almost into a sort of quasi-socialist city. There was a lot of uh, welfare programs. There was free tuition at um, Cooney uh, University for people, especially people who want to work in public administration. And there was a sense of, you know, although it's uh, like rear windows, the people are atomized and self-contained, it's still, it's a little bit of a community spirit, but that was gone. The suburbanites were gone. Uh, the, the tax revenue from the suburbanites were gone. You have the fiscal crisis. And then you have um, Travis Bickle, who's Scorsese's character. And he isn't African-American. He's a sort of isolated guy who fought in Vietnam and just wants to, you know, he wants to drive taxis at night um, because he's having trouble sleeping and he's, you know, he's isolated. He's 26. Um, he doesn't have that much of education. Um, and he, and you know, he, he seemed like someone um, who could, who probably was competent, you know, when he fought in the war. And um, you know, he, and he, he seems like a, you know, a decent person at some level. But he has all of these prejudices. And he's like, he thinks of New York and the city, especially African Americans in the city as kind of dirty and, and scummy and the, the animals and things like that. And he, and he drives in the city and, um, and so the narrative goes from him sort of uh, big, becoming a taxi driver, uh, driving in the city that he, he hates and starting to hate. And then seeing this, this lady who's a, who's a campaign worker. And um, when he meets her, you know, just because of, particular things about himself he's quite direct he's mysterious and um you know she's not against going on a date with him but eventually he takes her to a porno and not not one of those nice pornos is a <laughs> it's a strange european movie and uh she's very freaked out by this and she leaves and there's a sense, like, Scorsese always does this. I mean, he's done this in a lot of his movies. It's the um, Madonna whore complex. It's this idea that this woman who he doesn't know and um, doing something that he doesn't know anything about is that he's sort of 
he becomes a little bit possessive of her. He doesn't really know her, but he's fallen in love with her from this idea that he has in his head that she's different from all the grime and all the scum in the streets and, and blah, 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 blah. And he engages with her. And she, you know, she's, she's an idealistic beauty. You know, she is like the, the, the breakfast of Tiffany's character. But the difference between her is that she's established. She's like a waspy character. She's working in, on a political campaign. You know, she's, she's doing sort of uh, frontline things. And he's just a taxi driver. But he gets in his head that, you know, that, that maybe that she's going to have this connection, but he's under socialized, so he can't really take it further. And she, and then, you know, after she sees the porno, she eventually stops uh, answering his calls. And then his prejudices grow. There's that scene where Scorsese is a character, but he's in the backseat of the car and he drives uh, and sees um, his wife or someone that he says is his wife with an African-American guy. And he tells Travis that he's going to kill her. And that sort of the context grows of Travis, uh, who's feeling rejected, he's isolated, he's alone. And um, the anger, you know, he's, he's looking, really looking to explode. And then he eventually meets this um, young prostitute play, played by Jodie Foster. And uh, she, and, um, she's under the tutelage of this this sort of pimp guy, and uh, and eventually Travis meets her and interacts with her, and uh, he he wants to save her. But actually, there's two there's two sort of storylines. There's two ways that this can end. It's his interaction with the with Jodie Foster character, uh, telling her that she she shouldn't be doing what she's doing. Obviously, she's twelve years old. It's it's you know it's, she's really really bad position. And he wants to save her. And then there's the, the idea that he develops in his head that he wants to shoot the political candidate that the girl that's rejected him is working for. And so, like, one of them doesn't develop because as he's pulling out his gun, um, one of the security guards uh, sees that he's acting suspicious and then he runs away and he isn't found by them. And then the other one works out because he goes to try to save Jodie Foster's character and, and shoots, um, shoots a pimp, shoots the doorman and shoots the John as well. And um, the movie sort of ends vaguely. It's whether or not he was dreaming or he was dead. And, but the movie suggests that um, Jodie Foster went back to her parents and he's a hero. And then, you know, he's, he, he's got the girl we don't know if he's, he's got the girl and I, I think it's a really it's a really really interesting movie and I you know I haven't really talked as much about the African-American aspects of it but it's it's super important because Scorsese originally wanted the pimp to be played by a black person mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. um and that becomes more clearer because throughout the movie he, he's seeing these African-American kids he doesn't like he's seeing African-Americans that he associates with with pimps and prostitutes and whores and he says things like he wants a great rain to come and wash away the grime and the scum from the streets. And he's he he's he's suspicious of the African-American in the taxi um, ca- taxi cab place with other uh, taxi drivers. He looks at other African-American pimps and he's he, you know, he, he, he's sort of suspicious and he gets angry when he sees them. And this is sort of this thing, you know, this guy who's 
he's part of the the de- de- deterioration of New York. You know, he's part of the decay. He's a low, low sort of low status um, guy. Um, you know, he might have been competent in another. You know, given other opportunities or in a different context, and and he just he feels um, disaffected and alone and angry and bitter and and bitter at the other people in the in the city who also you know who also disenfranchise who also feel, many of them feel alone who who also don't have the resources that um, previous New Yorkers had, don't, don't have the so, so social safety net that previous New Yorkers had, don't have the opportunities that previous New Yorkers had. And, and you know, it is really, it's the archetypal film of that 1976 period, that the period of suspicion that you get with network, that you get with um, all the president's men, that you get with Dog Day Afternoon, this, 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 this New York that becomes more and more unlivable, more and more isolating, more and more atomized, you know. The the New York of Rear Window, it was fine when you could live like that in a society that was prospering, where economic growth was 5%, where opportunities were increasing, uh, where people getting jobs, but the New York becomes more and more unlivable and more and more distant, more and more difficult in a time of um limiting expectations i think yeah it's 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 a really powerful powerful film and i I think it's one of the greatest movies ever but yeah yeah and and you know our first uh scorsese film that we've picked was obviously a a key voice in in new york on film um a, a, a film I, I've seen many times if I, I actually wrote my dissertation on um for my undergraduate degree it's it does as you say toby it, it depicts uh an america and new york where um the the love of america and the love of a city has completely drained away um you know the the garbage is piling up on the streets and the, the hate is bubbling underneath you have the, this person who's going mad and uh living through this uh, new york which to him is becoming more and more unlivable and you know people obviously take their own interpretations of how the film ends and how how they see the the Travis Bickle character but for me the reason I was so drawn to it was that it's such a it's a period in time I'm so interested in this idea of the the, the post-Watergate post-Vietnam America really has fallen in hard times and it's it's before we get Reagan and you know the the American optimism starts to shift at least for certain people in America and it's uh, to some extent kind of New York at, at, at its lowest point and it, it both through the, the the world that we see on film and through the, the character of Travis Bickle we get this interpretation of New York as it's really struggling and it's <laughs> we have some deranged terrible characters in and amongst uh, the city most notably um Travis Bickle who is you know he may sort of do a heroic act in in some sense but he is absolutely not a heroic figure and is continuously um thinking bad things and doing bad things and i i i think it's it's it was a remarkable performance by de niro to to really um, communicate that on screen. 
Um, Vaughn, you did not enjoy this film. I think this is the first time you've you've seen it. Is that correct? This was the first time I've seen it. Um, yeah, let me be careful about how I say this, I think. So on a personal level, I did not like this film at all. I was mad for a while. Um, I think probably because I am a 26 year old woman and I have met so many Travis Bickles in my <laughs> life. And I was just like, not into this film at all. Um, also, as, as you said, Simon, this is something that you're personally interested in. Um, personally, I am not very interested in like, like my draw in history is not towards the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like a different world for me to be looking into. Um, I don't watch a lot of 70s cinema. So it was a very interesting kind of case study. All of that said, I absolutely understand why you chose this one, Toby. And I think everything that you said is is very accurate on the kind of depiction of New York and the character and culture of New York in this period um, of so much kind of decay of kind of American character, as you said, it's the the bicentennial year. And this is a grim, grim view of what America has become and how American youth are kind of perceiving of the country around them as one of filth that needs cleaning. Um, All of that, I definitely agree. It's it's a very powerful film for, for those takes. And I agree with you that it's a great pick for depicting New York um, in the 1970s. I just am not a fan. I would say that at the Oscars in 1977, uh, this film was up against Rocky. Yeah. Um, mm. And Rocky won. Yeah, and, it did. And, um, you know, there's two ways of, of really viewing this. You know, people, you know, there was unemployment, there was a disaffection, and then you had this sort of uh, working class hometown hero, and he, you know, and, and he won, you know, he, he, he showed what he was made of, showed his strength and strength of character, and, um, and delivered uh, catharsis and happiness and and I think Americans really needed that. And mm. Rocky gave that to them. And then this film is a much more difficult pill to swallow. And, and I do think like some of it comes from the fact that maybe me, I don't know, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't profess to talk about Simon, but maybe I've, I sort of, there's a part of the sort of the seventies that I think had real potential because you know, you had uh, Jimmy Carter doing his Malay speech, talking about a crisis of confidence, really talking to Americans like adults, you know, even talking to Americans about, um, you know, fiscal retrenchment, but also talking to them about, you know, disaffection and, and the difficulties that they were, they were going through. And then Reagan comes in and with the, you know, rah-rah America, blah, 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 blah. And everyone get, gets whipped up into that. And it's almost like a, an extended childhood for the country. Well, I think mm. this this movie really showed, you know, how circumstances and how experiences can really sculpt people and 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 
and and how far away we are from really understanding people who maybe you might let be less socialized than we are or or poorer than we are or or maybe they would have been successful in a different context but aren't successful in the, this particular context uh, the same thing with the you know the the the, the 12 year old um prostitute in Jodie Foster it's it, it's just there's a there's an adulthood to this movie and to Scorsese's really the depiction that I think that holds so much potential for 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 America or or just and and I think really maybe comes from the fact that Scorsese was someone who watched a lot of like the uh, Nouvelle Vague the the French New Wave stuff. There's a lot of French New Wave techniques in this movie, and um, Scorsese is much he's much more cynical than a lot of the. Uh, American directors, even of the period, you know, even all those California directors like um, Coppola and um, obviously Lucas and Spielberg and things like that. Yeah, so I, I think it's um, it's an important movie. It's a controversial movie. It's it's certainly not a movie that everyone likes. I, I think Pauline mm. Kael hated this movie, and many people uh, hated this movie. And it did, you know, it, it might have won an Oscar, but didn't win an Oscar. Rocky won the Oscar. It's a very controversial movie, but it's uh, it's an important movie. So, this is why I, yeah. I put it in there. Absolutely, it, it definitely left its mark one way or the other on the American psyche and the whole you, 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 you talking to me kind of thing. Um, was was famous certainly well into the nineties when I was a kid. Um, right, the next film we have two films from nineteen eighty four, but. Uh, probably the best way to do this is i'll go first with mine just because of the running order of the other ones that come so Mm -hmm. um my next film is ghostbusters which is slightly different to taxi driver Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, so yes 1984 uh ghostbusters came out and it was a sensation i mean it made a huge amount of money uh, at the box office and is quite a different film than my previous pick in, in serpico um, although again, there is a little bit of, about institutions as far as as far as this film is concerned. But um, essentially, the film is about these scientists um, who get kicked out of, of Columbia University uh, because their investigation into the paranormal is <laughs> kind of not wanted. Um, and th- there's a, a very important line of dialogue at the start of the film uh, where. Um, Dan Aykroyd's character says, oh, you don't know what it's like outside outside of uh, being in, in college. You know, in college, you can just kind of get away with doing whatever you want. In the private sector, they expect results. And it it's really, it really sticks in your mind when you watch it now as this, uh, I, I guess, accumulation of what America was becoming and what New York was kind of becoming to a certain extent with the Reaganomics of America, that this pro-business, pro, um, pro-private enterprise, um, almost pro-Republican viewpoint that was against government intervention. And in fact, although there's this Zool character who's the kind of otherworldly bad guy, the actual real bad guy of the film is an EPA agent who tries to shut them down and is just constantly a dick to them. And it's just shown as just just the fucking environmental protection agency getting in the way and (laughs) making them like, like there's there's a scene where they start, they've trapped ghosts who are sort of coming in because of this this portal. And he's like, 
he gets like police officers to like come in and like shut it down just like turn the power off and then all the ghosts escape and then we have hell break loose and it's just like the fucking epa have come in here <laughs> destroying destroying a, a business which these these enterprising young men have built and government inter- wasn't the epa nixon's thing simon <laughs> Are you slandering your own man here? No, if Nixon was still in charge, I can assure you the EPA would not have got involved. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it very much went off the rails once Nixon was no longer there to supervise it. As, as, <laughs> as with America in general, I would say. <laughs> Sorry, continue. But yes, and, and so, so you have the, this element of uh, th- this, this attitude of the, the private enterprise and this uh, disdain towards uh, towards government interference, which is a very, mm. very 80s trope and kind of fits in well with, with New York as far as the, some of the increase in um, uh, movement t- towards, um, you know, uh, private enterprise compared to government interference. Uh, and there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. One was it's uh, unlike Serpico, it, it, it's part, I would Ghostbusters is much more of a genre entertainment Manhattan film. It, it, the kind of the, the way that we have other films coming up with, with you know, you got Home Alone two, and you've got Spider Man, you've got Avengers, and you've got Elf, and it's these genre entertainment films, these blockbuster popcorn films that take place in Manhattan. So th- there's that element as well, which I think is important to to set up in in, in the years ahead. But then there's also this um, this finance relationship um point which i was just talking about which i I think is important to set up because throughout the 80s we we have other films that that touch on um what the um sort of wall street for instance which is kind of more of a takedown off of wall street and is kind of more Mm -hmm. critical of it but even something like working girl which is a character who comes in from uh, staten island and travels in and sort of uses certain uh, techniques to sort of get a high powered job within the city but that that is very that's less critical of of working and it's more aspirational to, to, to work in manhattan and have a high power status job and to to go to art exhibitions and that kind of thing and so so something like ghostbusters is um it's popular entertainment but i, I do think there is a there is an undercurrent off of politics and of, of social uh, politics. Mm-hmm. And I believe Republicans actually love this film. I think the national review had as one of their be- best films of, of like of the American 20th century or whatever. And it's easy to see why with that message of private enterprise above uh, interference from uh, <laughs> government agencies. Uh, Vaughn, did you have any, any thoughts on Ghostbusters? Uh, yeah, it's great. Such a classic. Um, no, I agree with you on all of those things. I think it's very much um, a film about kind of deregulation of government interference, which it comes out in 84. It's peak Reagan. Like, mm-hmm. it's right in there. Um, and I do think that it kind of ushers in this new, at least mainstream on film, uh, kind of idea of New York as something that can be no longer necessarily a concrete jungle, but now a concrete playground mm. that you can kind of play around with New York and make it an enjoyable, fun character in a way that it hasn't really been on mainstream films. Yeah. Um, 
New York is never just one thing at a time, of course, mm-hmm. but the the actual playfulness of New York in Ghostbusters, I think, is quite a new thing in in the 80s yep. um, and leads into my choice as well. But Toby, do you have anything to say about Ghostbusters before I? No, I mean, Ghostbusters is, is a really, really fun movie. It's, um, mm-hmm. I think it um it stays on one of my friends top 10 lists and i i understand why um i think it's um you know i've always felt like it was like a saturday morning cartoon but a perfect saturday morning cartoon mm-hmm. and yeah. towards the end you know there's a you know the use of the villain the taking you to different visuals the the bringing in of the um the people in the city mm-hmm. yep. to talk about the things that are happening it's uh, it's yeah it's it's it, it's a celebration of new york it's a celebration of a certain amount of um sort of uh, deregulation and and doing it yourself but yeah it's, I, I think it's a it, it's probably to be honest it's probably the movie on this um list that i uh, that i could easily watch without you know yeah. just, just yeah just going and what apart from maybe serpico yeah that that and serpico are probably the movies i could just watch at any 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 time it's yeah it's a, it's a great film mm. ghostbusters is such an easy watch you can just like fire it on netflix and just be like yeah that's that's just two hours that's really enjoyable it's got a bunch of funny characters and good acting and the, mm-hmm. the there's also a little element of you know you get to see things like new york public library and you know you get to see certain parts of manhattan and you know you so you get that visual of new york and then as uh, as you guys have said you also get this there's a certain boots on the ground element of, of ghostbusters as well so at the end of the, the film when they're fight, fighting this bad guy you know new yorkers are out on the street and they're mm-hmm. cheering them on and you know it, it's you know it's us against the bad guy, and we're all in this together, which is something we'll we'll talk about in later films that come out. And even Ghostbusters Two, which is nowhere near as good a film, they have um, really strong New York elements as well. So they have the Statue of Liberty coming to life in order to to, to fight the bad bad energy. And uh, in Ghostbusters Two, they also around that same time they have the I think it's taking taking place around sort of Christmas time. And in order to fight the, some of the, the sort of the bad demons, as it were, the New York crowd are singing "Old Lang Syne" um, to to increase the, the sort of positive energy. And that again is a, a key thing. One of the, one of the sort of crystallized images for me of New York on film is the, the Christmas element, which we often see yes. in this togetherness of New York. And so, while Ghostbusters Two isn't as good as Ghostbusters One. You, you get that um, similar similarly way you do in Elf, actually, where hmm. people are coming together and they're singing and there's the spirit of New York and, you know, the Christmas trees are up and all this kind of stuff. And so Ghostbusters 1 is a far superior film, but Ghostbusters 2 does have some interesting elements about New York on film as well. And um, uh, yeah, that's kind of why I picked it. For many reasons why I picked it, but as well as the... The, the, the financial thing and the, the private enterprise thing there's also a little bit of the new york coming together side of things that you get in both ghostbusters one and ghostbusters two and it's so far away from taxi driver is <laughs> but the world has completely changed the, the cinematic world mm-hmm. um has completely changed it's yeah ed um ed koch was able to mm-hmm. uh you know sort of bring new york's finances 
make them stronger, um, cancel a lot of the programs, the social programs that people needed. And then the suburbanites started coming back in. Um, the the revenues started being generated. Uh, Wall Street started um, getting stronger. The corporations started coming back. I mean, really, it's 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 a broader trend in America after the inflation of the the 1970s. But yeah, so things have changed in the city. Definitely, it's a different place. Um, there are even ghosts in the city now. <laughs> the ghosts are returning. <laughs> They're no longer having to uh, commute in. To yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's the world of, of Wall Street. It's the world of um, the Muppets Take Manhattan. It's, it's, it's a different world. Well, Toby, you have set up another 1984 film, which Vaughn, would you like to, to introduce for us? Yes, I do. And one, one other thing that I want to say about Ghostbusters that oh, does okay. transition into this is um, that there's another view kind of that helps Ghostbusters be so popular in that it is Bill Murray and mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd who are both on Saturday Night Live um, in this period. And they are very much kind of a face of how people in the time, their public imaginary of New York was influenced by Saturday Night Live. Um right. And their kind of fame. So seeing them being kind of the saviors of New York is very fitting for that time. And that, I think, uh, from that cultural kind of perspective, leads into my second choice, which is The Muppets Take Manhattan, because it's a perfect film. I enjoy it a lot. Um, just very quickly, quick summation of the plot. The Muppets, they, they're graduating from college Um, And they have this show called Manhattan Melodies in which Kermit and Miss Piggy get married and follow their dreams to New York. um, And they want to take it to Broadway. And the film is about them absolutely struggling to take their show to Broadway and realizing that kind of success in the big city is not guaranteed. You have to work very hard for it. And a lot of it is based on luck and um, wealthier people investing in you. Uh, which is a trend that we've been talking about throughout this. And at the very beginning, um, one of the first theater producer that they go to, he immediately tries to swindle them, which is great. But in telling him what their show is about, he's like, oh, so like cops and shootings and all this violence. And they're like, no, 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 no shootings. Like it's a Muppet show. Um, And he keeps like, there's this, this little bit just back and forth of him trying to be like, so there are cops and there are people dying and they, they keep saying no. And he's like, no, of course, nobody wants shootings anymore. And this being in 1984, in this context that we've been talking about right after the seventies of all of this crime and violence and Serpico and, and taxi driver, you get this new kind of rehabilitated image of New York as this fun metropolitan. We can, we can have fun here. We can have success stories. And, and I think it's this key instance of, of portraying New York's, again, multifaceted changing identity over time um, and the investment that's being put into New York to change that image on the mainstream. The Muppets are clearly making fun of this, that New York is trying so hard to, to change this image. Um, and 
it's great. There's so many montages in the film. I think there are like three different montages, which is just such a quintessential New York thing. They're like walking down the street with a low angle camera and it's, you can see the buildings behind them, uh, all the skyscrapers. Uh, Kermit yells from the top of the Empire State Building that uh, he's like, you hear me, New York? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not giving up. I'm staying here. And it's it's this like just very heartfelt kind of impassioned New Yorker trying to succeed story. Um, and with this kind of cultural face of New York, there's, and it being the Muppets, there are so many, so many cameos in this film of popular um, figures and actors and, and what have you. Um, like Brooke Shields and Elliot Gould are in the cafe for, they don't even have a, well, I think they each have like one line. Um, Gregory Hines is in it. Uh, Joan Rivers is in it and has a whole very fun scene with Miss Piggy and like picking up her spirits after she's upset that she thinks Kermit's cheating on her and all this. Um, <laughs> they're in Sardi's Cafe at one point, which is the very quintessential iconic cafe in New York uh, with all of the kind of portrait, the, the drawn portraits of famous people who have eaten there. Um, that comes up in so much media, especially in the 80s, I think, about New York. And Liza Minnelli is there. And it's just, there's, it's, it captures that idea that you can run into a famous person every time you're in New York. Um, and it's just a, a, a whole new kind of playful kind of view of, of New York and specifically Manhattan and Broadway, which we haven't spoken about um, throughout this that has its own personal history uh, or individual history rather from New York, but it, it brings that into the mix. And Mayor Cook, um, or Co I'd never say his name. I don't yeah, know. I'm never name. quite sure myself. He, yeah, he shows up, he has a cameo and they're looking for Kermit because he gets amnesia um, right before their show is going on Broadway. Uh, they've finally been given a chance to, to go on purely out of luck and he gets amnesia. So they're looking for him. And um, I think Gonzo goes to Mayor Cook and asks if he's seen Kermit. And his line is, if he can balance the budget, I'll hire him. And it's this very <laughs> playful kind of like, it's mocking <laughs> New York a bit in very Muppet fashion of like, you're the, the mayor is putting so much money and, and flooding money into um, New York to try and rehabilitate the image and uh, work on housing and urban renewal and all of these different programs, as we've been saying. Um, and it's just very tongue in cheek, I think. It's a great representation of, of 80s New York for me. I, I think it, it's everything, obviously, as you say, Vaughn is correct. Also, this idea of sort of destination New York as well. This idea yeah. of you know, going to New York to fulfill your dreams, and you know ha having a having a Broadway show to sell. And we get the uh, the song. I think it's called "Saying Goodbye," when uh, when when they're not not able when they're forced to go the separate ways, and you have the goodbyes, and you have people leaving in the various modes of transport. And I think Miss Picky's in the train, and I think you have other characters start hitchhiking and other people on on mm -hmm. buses. And it's, you know, it's, we failed, the New York dream has failed us. We must, we must uh, spread out back to where we came from. 
and I, I guess it, a little bit of sort of similarity in this idea of you know the destination New York where we had in Breakfast Tiffany's where you're you know you're coming to New York to reinvent yourself where in, in this case you're coming to New York to realize a dream you know to, to, to sell the musical to to get this thing off the ground and it's it, it's a Muppets film so it's always going to be enjoyable but there's also as you say Vaughn there's always going to be something underneath it which you know will have you know uh, an interesting little sort of sting of sting of the tail as it were you know even if it's not you know some amazing social commentary that there's always things underneath which is sort of uh there's something to dig to dig to dig into and um i think i think it's a really fine choice i think it was a really good pick well the muppets are are very anti-capitalist just in like every muppets film is very anti-capitalist mm-hmm. um and i think that really comes out in this film with how kind of bumbling all of the producers seem um that none of them really seem like good people except for the the young one who gives them a shot but he isn't a capitalist himself he doesn't have the money he has to go to his dad for the money and his dad is this he's kind of a prick and whatever um and then kermit when he has amnesia he gets a job as a marketing person and all of the people in advertising or well they're frogs um like kermit (laughs) but they're all very bland individuals and they really suck and they make Kermit suck in, in this role. Um, it's just boring and all of their names rhyme. They're, they're even like washed out greens. They're all wearing suits and things like they, they're terrible. And when Miss Piggy tries to tell him like, we're in love, we're going to get married. And he still has this memory loss. he, he says, oh, right, a frog and a pig. Like, of course, wait till the guys in marketing hear that one. And it is such a great anti-capitalist line for, for the Muppets, I think. Like, it, <laughs> it's so kind of piercing against the whole Wall Street qu- culture of New York yeah. while still engaging with it on a very fun and creative kind of level. I love that film. I love the Muppets. Is there anything else we'd like to to add on Muppets Take New York? Toby, yeah. any favorite any favorite Muppet? Uh, um, favorite Muppet? Fuck, let me. Uh, you can't say Jimmy Carter, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> I mean, I, I like Miss Piggy. You, know? you like Miss Piggy? Yeah, nice. I think she's uh she's very confident. I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. I think she's great. <laughs> That's a good choice. <laughs> okay so um that was muppets take manhattan 1984 thank you Vaughn. um mm-hmm. so we now each have one pick left and uh it's actually chronologically it, it's my film that, that comes next which is do the right thing uh by spike lee from 1989 um actually written and directed by spike lee but also stars spike lee as one of the characters uh pizza delivery uh man uh, also stars Danny Aiello as the pizza shop owner. He was actually Oscar nominated for for his performance. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it was actually Spike Lee actually had Robert De Niro in mind for that character, um, which obviously would have been interesting considering Robert De Niro's own New York past. Um, mm. But um, yeah, Aiello does does a great job, uh, and it, it tells the story of, of the hottest day in New York. And the, the tensions that arise between different sets of people, um, 
within this day ultimately leading to tragedy um uh, towards the end of the film where there is um a, a ruckus that happens in a in the pizza shop uh in sal's pizzeria where um much of the film is, is taking place or sort of being a central figure and w- one of the, the characters is um he, he's involved in in, in a disagreement in, in a fight with the sal's um pizzeria owner character and the argument kind of comes about because um the, the character um is is one team called radio rahim uh played by bill noon who actually will appear in a, a later film we're going to talk about um but his radio rahim character um uh he's you know there's this uh, him and i think the bugging out character uh played by um um esposito um from breaking bad Giancarlo. yes um, they they have various disagreements. Um, the bugging out character wants um, more wants black people on the the wall of this pizzeria to better represent the neighborhood um, because it, it's in Bed Stuy, which is a very black uh, part of Brooklyn, and you have these white pizza owners who sort of drive in from their part of New York into uh, into this pizzeria where they've been serving pizza for twenty years or so. Uh, but he, the pizza owner Sal, wants to keep this white Italian American um, image within the the pizzeria, and that causes some tension. And um, on the other side, you have the Radio Raheem character who gets his name because he he's always carrying around this large boombox and playing the music. Um, and it's um, it, if fight the power is the song which obviously is a very very famous song from that time and um sal does not want this music and he he's he's angry t- towards radio him for blasting this music in his pizza shop and the, the tensions build up late in the film um to the point where radio Rahim's uh, music box gets destroyed and there, there's a fight the police are called and we've we've sort of seen police before this um and we could sort of know the faces, but they they come back again when this uh, sort of kerfuffle breaks out, when this fight breaks out. But rather than showing any kind of restraint, um, they end up uh, choking the Radio Rahim character to death, and he ends up he ends up dying, and just his body gets thrown in the back of a police car, and it gets escorted away, and um, the the death of this character. Um, it, it ignites even greater tension with, within within Bedsty, and it's the Spike Lee character who actually throws a, a trash can through the window, and they end up uh, essentially de- destroying the pizzeria and setting fire to it, and um, the, the film sort of ends with the Spike Lee character and the Sal Pizza owner character sort of having a conversation um, after these events, and it's. I wanted to pick a film which was about living in New York. So there were lots of ones that I considered um, from various time periods, things like Brooklyn, King of Staten Island in America, Francis Ha, you've got the Woody Allen films, you've got the Noah Baumbach films. But Do the Right Thing was the the most obvious choice for me because A, Spike Lee is a really important New York filmmaker. 
be this film is a really important New York film in, in itself and it's inspired by some real life events um, and see there's also some other political um, stuff that takes place throughout the film so um, th- throughout the film you've got the uh, Samuel Jackson's character um, who's uh, a radio broadcaster uh, within this community and he's sort of telling people to, to go out and go out and vote and um, you also hear, you also see some uh, writing on the wall of the uh, spray paint on the wall about this, you know, kick Koch out, kick Mayor Koch out, and there's a um, um, image of, of a boxing glove um, sort of uh, being thrown by Mike Tyson against this Koch character, and um, it's this political statement of, of them wanting to, to get rid of, of, of him in the, the 89 election, which they ultimately do. And it was, uh, he ends up losing uh, to David Dinkins, who then went on to defeat Rudy Giuliani. So from a, from a, a film perspective, it, I think it's still very relevant today with obviously all, all the stuff, that, you know, the racial tensions with, within New York and throughout America. So that, that was important for me to try and get across was to actually have, you know, have, have a, a genuine black story, which, you know, one of the defining f- features of, of something like uh, the bed over the 20th century is this transition towards greater African-American um, demographics. And so you, you see the, the, the Brooklyn of 89 being different to the, the Brooklyn of say the, the 50s in which, um, uh, Serpico was growing up and I, I think it's just it stands as a really interesting and important film and um, I like I say there were lots of films I could have picked for this living in New York or the sort of neighborhood of New York type film but for, for me do the right thing was perhaps the most important of all those. Toby did you have any any thoughts on the film? Yeah, yeah I think it's a it's a really great film um, the way it goes from sort of like an interesting narrative a little bit of social commentary to the explosion at the end mm-hmm. i thought the explosion at the end is really really good the the way um and all, all all the main character had to do was throw a trash can you know and then the whole thing just explodes and i i think it's really important because you know new york is a place it's depicted in a certain way and it's still depicted in a certain way but new york has two million black people in it the city has two million black people in it. I mean, the state has even more, but it is, you know, it's one of the most um, African-American cities in America. It's, it's defined in many ways by its African-American inhabitants. Um, and, and many of them were immigrants to that part of the country because many of them came from the South to live in New York, to um, get the, especially in the fifties and sixties to get the jobs, but the jobs started to, um, go away and then you know, have you have the fiscal crisis but then you have the majority of people like Ed Koch and they don't care about African Americans as much as old mayors like John Lindsay and, I, and many African Americans feel quite marginalized and then there's this tension because Italian Americans um, you know although you know there's the cinematic depictions but Italian Americans many of them had uh, fully assimilated into American uh, culture. Many of them had were upper, um, mo- were mobile or moving uh, mobile. You know, stories like you know, Giuliani and people like that. 
and there's this tension, this ethnic tension. There's always been alive in New York. I mean, you can all go all the way back to gangs of New York where there's, there's this tension between the different ethnic groups, but there's tension between African-Americans and Italian-Americans. Um, there's even the scene with um, uh, John Totoro talking to Spike Lee when he's like, um, you know, there's a... Uh, like he's talking about his favorite celebrities and he's talking about magic and prince and the main character's like wait but uh thought you i thought you hated black people but he's like well they're not black like magic and prince aren't are black that you know they're they're different you know yeah. this idea of um you know that there's african americans but if they achieve a certain amount of fame that they become exceptional special yes. or exceptional accepted by the broader american culture they become like like coca-cola or you know like like oj when he was winning the heisman trophy and things like that and just sort of but there remains this tension and this this tension is actually very very political because a lot of the uh, italian americans were part of that sort of 70s and 80s generation many of them moved to the suburbs and many many of them uh voted for the first time uh for the republican party outside of new york and um there was this tension between that group, which saw themselves as really assimilated, and then this African American group, and uh, it all comes to a head, you know, in the in the in the pizza shop where they're arguing about um, the celebrities on the wall, mm-hmm. and um, Sal eventually, you know, goes in, and um, you know, someone dies, and and yeah, and so it's just it's it's really a it's it's really one of these New York stories that it is about the churn of so many different people being here in such a hot place, uh, the urban jungle and, and, and all that. Uh, I think it's a, it's a really good movie. And it's, it's also uh, exemplifies a lot of the very specific tensions that were happening between uh, Ed Koch, who was a Democrat, but you know, as um, Vaughan says, he, he campaigned to the right of the law and order people. And then he goes up against David Dinkins and David Dinkins, uh, really, who's supported by many white liberals, really wants to make the city into the old city in terms of its fiscal responsibilities to African Americans, to other marginalized groups, and um, and he has and there's real tension politically between David Dinkins and Giuliani, and uh, further tension between David Jenkins and Giuliani when Giuliani eventually beats him. And this this African American Italian thing is really like it's it's mm-hmm. super contemporary to the to the, to the time. Yeah, and um, some parts of the film you hear them shouting Howard Beach, which was in, in reference to um, Howard Beach, uh, Italian American neighborhood in, in Queens, New York, where. Uh, four black men that they, they were traveling and their car broke down and they ended up being uh, I think some of them were beaten I think one of them at least one of them was, was sort of killed uh, by, by the, one of their cars off of one of the Italian Americans and it was just another example of of this uh, murder of, of black people which obviously we, we, we see at the end of the film with Radio Rahim uh, Vaughn um, had you seen this film but before the uh, before we were doing research for this podcast and what, what were your thoughts on it after, after watching? Um, I had not seen this film and I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, I mean, it's Spike Lee. It was a great film. And also from the very start, I was like, this is a Spike Lee film. And then <laughs> all the way through and as it escalates towards the end, I was like, this is such a Spike Lee film. Um, 
which is a good thing. It was, it was really great. And yeah, I think everything that you two have just said, it really captures um, the tensions in New York. As, as we've said, New York is never one thing at one time. It's so many things all at once. And it has such a history of all of those different things clashing because it is the melting pot, melting pot, as one of you said earlier. Yeah. Um, through all of New York's history, there's there's clashes between different immigrant groups or or different um, class groups or b- between different races, and it's this film really captures especially with the the Spike Lee elements of bringing through Malcolm X and um, MLK and their kind of words throughout the film, it really captures how um, just because the civil rights movement is over doesn't mean there aren't problems. And I think that the the final kind of scenes of, um, of the escalation and the police murdering Radio Rahim, they're so well done that it feels so such a natural escalation Mm -hmm. and it's suspenseful and it's really really engaging and unfortunately it's extremely contemporary even today almost what third well yeah 30 years later 32 years later um especially right now we're a year after um George Floyd's murder and the escalations of um, Black Lives Matter movements against police brutality. It Watching it this week was very almost uncomfortable, but in a good way uncomfortable that we should be talking about these things. And also heartbreaking that this was a film that came out 32 years ago um, and is still painfully modern and contemporary to today. Um, but I, I, no, I do agree. I think it, it was extremely well done and it really captures, it really captures the tensions of New York that are still very much there today. So I I thought this was an excellent pick. Thank you. Um, I'll try and take that, um, as, as well as I can. And I know it's Mm -hmm. difficult for you to say anything nice about me, Vaughn. So I appreciate that. Uh, and, (laughs) and one of the things I've obviously, with my first pick and my third pick was this idea of, of corruption and brutality. Mm-hmm. You know, so, some of the stuff we see in Serpico with the attitudes towards black people by the police, we obviously see again in in the the, the murder that takes place uh, with Do the Right Thing. Okay, yeah. so, so that was 1989 and uh, Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Toby, your pick is next. I believe that uh, came out in 1990. Yeah, it came out in 1990, but it was filmed mostly in the mid to late 1980s. Uh, it's just a documentary called uh, Paris is Burning by Jenny Livingston. And um, yeah, I think I, I was sort of surfing documentaries back when I would watch everything and I, and I discovered this, this movie. And uh, I think it's, I think it's re it's a really great movie. I think, I think the, the obvious resonances when you, when you all come out of the, the fact that, you know, um, you know, there's always this idea of New York. I think you go to Lou Reed, you know, that, that someone could come to New York and, um, you know, you start off as one thing, you know, you're a, you're a guy, then you become a girl or um, you, uh, breakfast and Tiffany's, you can come to New York and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, from the country, you can change yourself. 
And I think Paris is burning is a real sort of example of that, especially with the, the transgender community in the movie. Um, they come to these balls and many of them are, you know, they sort of have no, normal jobs or many of them sort of itinerant. Many of them had left their families, you know. Uh, there's a story of um, a young person who was out dressed as a woman and then his father saw him and went back to, to home to tell his mother that, you know, your, your son's a woman. And um, that's difficult because she loves him, but she she doesn't she wants him to be, you know, what he was born as. And it, it's not just that they want to be something else. They, they also want to be glamorous. You know, they want to be like the Catherine Hepburn character. They, they want to be in the center of the, the culture. They, they want to be respected. They not only need to be seen for who they are, but respected for what they do. And so you get this sort of almost like this anthropological um, survey of these different character types who get into these balls um, where many people sort of dress in really fancy clothes and do dances and um, do sort of like uh, artistic uh, movements. And uh, I, I think, but one of the other things about it is that a lot of these characters they want the things that people come to New York for. Um, the people talk about fame. They talk about throwing shade. Uh, they talk about wealth. Uh, many of these characters want to be wealthy. They say, you know, I, I, I couldn't even be middle class. You know, I want to be, I want to be rich. And it's a community based on um, consumerism. And in many ways, it's like, in 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 the view of New York movies, it's like New York was one thing in the forties and fifties, and then things changed in the sixties with the with the fiscal crisis and the retrenchment of the the government, and New York became something else. It became the Gotham, and then in the eighties, um, politicians try to make New York into um just to, to attract tourism to attract um investment financial institutions to attract companies um they made it into something else but they still didn't bring back the old new york of john lindsay and uh, uh, nelson rockefeller which was much more uh, concerned with the community responsibility and then a lot of african americans in the city they still look to Manhattan as a place where they wanted to go, a place where rich white people lived, a place where they could have the things that they wanted. And you could see this reflected in rap music, for example. Um, so especially in the, in the 90s, rap becomes much more about consumerism and much more about making yourself. And the rapper is a businessman. And the artists uh in paris's burning in many ways think that way as well they, they're not just making their identities then you used to be a boy now you know you, you're a girl but you're you're someone who who wants to be rich wants to be well loved wants to be respected wants to throw shade and there's all of these stories and i think with the movies i've picked it's sort of i think i've tried to focus on um, who is the city for, you know? So in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, the city can be for a girl who comes from nowhere and is attractive and um, can pretend to be 
of a higher status than she is. And then um, that image dies away and people leave the, the, the city, go to the suburbs and the revenue goes away from the city. And then the depiction of New York from outside is that the city's for black people and it's, it's for um, it's for criminals and it's for losers and it's for artists and there's a lot of art that goes into the city at that time you know artists love using the the, the rent control or low rent uh, apartments in order to make their arts even people like Martin Scorsese himself you know and then um, in the 80s the money comes back in and the city is for young aspirant people from the suburbs to come back and make money and um, yeah, Wall Street and um, Tom Wolfe um, no novels, you know, the, about wealth and about the financial sector and the glamour and the, the sort of the Catherine Hepburn, Tiffany's S glamour comes back. And then there's people on the margins of that who want that, you know, there's African-Americans want that and um, people want that. And, and the city isn't necessarily for them. It's for the people coming back into the city. It's for rich people. It's for the Upper East Side. But they want what the city can offer them. They want to be respected. They're, they're poor, but they want to be rich. They want to be loved. They want to be seen. They want to be seen. And I think, I think, it's, I think there's a link with Travis Bickle because Travis Bickle is someone who's having conversations with himself. And he, and, you know, like... Um, uh, you talking to me? You know he wants to be seen, but he isn't being seen. And the the characters in Paris is Burning also want to be seen for for who they are in a city like where Travis Bickle that doesn't necessarily value them. But the difference between um, them and Travis Bickle is Bickle sort of rejects all of it, and they accept so much of it and want to be part of it. Uh, and then I think in the more sort of um, sort of uh, middle of the road New York movies, you get people coming to the city, being successful, being seen for who they are in the Muppets, you know, the, being seen for their dreams or for what they want to do or what they want to achieve or defeating um, uh, aliens or defeating ghosts and things like that yeah so it's, it's like for, for me it's like new york's cinema is along the lines of like um it has an ideal of who the real new yorker is what the what the city wants to express outwards and and what outside of the city people think that the city represents and who the city is for and i think the paris is burning people the 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 dancers they they're really on the margins of it because they do see who the city's for. They want to be part of it, but they're, they're not exactly part of it because of the, you know, there's they're transgender or they're, they're, they're not seen as um, ideal New Yorkers, but they, but they love New York. And I, and I think that's, that's why I, I picked the movie. Uh, it was a fine cho choice, Toby. And obviously it allows us to talk about, you know, subcultures that might not necessarily come out through a lot of the, Sort of mainstream narrative films or fictional films of the, of the 20th century, which um, documentaries give us a chance to um, talk about things that perhaps 
Hollywood wouldn't um, dive into to otherwise. And um, being the sort of late eighties period, we we get the income equality off uh, Manhattan at the time. Um, we get the stories of you know people having to sleep rough and not eating as a result of you know um, preparation for these these balls that that are happening within the community. We get the the voguing, uh, the, 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 um, the Vogue dance-offs that um, would eventually become into popular culture through through Madonna, and w- with any documentary, you know, it raises questions about you know uh, potential tourism with, within a within a particular um, subculture. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly qualified to make those kind of statements, but I, I've heard some arguments about whether or not, um, you know, the, the, there could have been um, different interpretations of, of how people, um, or the, the filmmaker herself, who I, I, I believe is a, a, a white gay woman, um, who's perhaps not active within that specific sort of subculture, um, and you know, there, there, I think there are maybe some questions raised by certain people within in that culture about you know the, the viewpoint in which the film was was coming out. But I, I do agree. I think it is, it's an important historical document, and it's a it's both a, a fascinating time. It's a time that's sort of late eight, mid to late eighties, early nineties time period. I find really interesting in New York, but it's also a lot of awful. Like in, like I say, the income equality, the AIDS epidemic of the. the crack epidemic in new york around that time you know i think murders within i think homicides i think the murder rate hits an all-time high and i think it's 1991 i think it is in new york so there's a lot of 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 trouble within that but then there's also this as you said this exuberance of humanity of this community coming together of these houses as they're called within the community um of looking out for one another and being able to express themselves and there's such beauty in that about people who are marginalized even within within the communities themselves so when the the sort of drag balls of the the earlier 20th century were more excluding of black people and kept them away from the the prizes and some of the the riches of the industry um we we saw that evolved i think in the 70s and 80s where um the, the the black and um, um, non-white element of, of that community is able to to find its feet, and uh, like I say, I'm certainly no expert on this field, but my understanding is that has grown uh, more in the 21st century as as well. Some of these houses and some of the the media around that and the the exposure they get. So obviously, the Paris is burning was a, an important document to that as well. Uh, Vaughn, have you got any, any any thoughts on the film? Uh, yeah, so I wasn't aware of this until you um, chose it, Toby. So thank you for doing that because I really, I, I really enjoyed it as a cultural piece, um, and I don't have much more to say that you guys haven't already. I think you both really covered it very well, um, but I will say that I think that this this film in particular really highlights that um, early 90s, late 80s push for New York to rehabilitate its image by not only highlighting Manhattan as the kind of public and international face of New York, but rather looking at New York more holistically um, as multiple cultures and multiple boroughs. 
being so diverse as it is. And I think that's really evidenced for this film in who funded it. Um, I, I just had a look at the end of the film. It was funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Jerome Foundation, New York State Council of the Arts, New York Foundation for the Arts, Paul Robeson Fund and the Edelman Fund. Um, and getting such public funding for a film about, as you said, these kind of fringe groups in New York or marginalized communities in New York of homosexuals in the, um, during the AIDS epidemic is such a kind of turn, I think, for the public perception and public cultural kind of mindset of what New York is. And I, I think it's a really kind of brilliant, um, at least move for changing that perception and changing the, the image of New York um, in that way to be more inclusive as it were of this community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else we want to add or should we move on, should we move on to your, your final pick for the day? Okay, well, uh, if, if we, sorry, on you go. Oh, no, no, you're good. We can move on. Uh, that's fine. Final film? Um, sorry. Final film? Final film. So our, our final film moves us from this late 80s, early 90s uh, period to actually the 21st century. And we get our, our first film um, post, <laughs> post the millennium and 2002. And Vaughn, do you want to introduce the film? It's Spider-Man. Nice. Because of course it is. Um, so yes, I chose the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film from 2002 with Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, who is visually um, clearly in his mid-twenties. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's the story of Spider-Man, isn't it? It's uh, with the Green Goblin as the villain. It's um, his origin story, so you see Toby Maguire with his um, Aunt May and Uncle Ben living this kind of, he's a nerd and a loser. It, well, he's not even a nerd. The other nerds don't like him. Like he's just such a social outcast yeah. and everybody hates him except for James Franco for some reason, who is the wealthy son of Willem Dafoe, uh, Norman Osborn, who becomes Green Goblin. Yep. And you get the whole origin story from um, Spider-Man or Peter Parker making his costume for a like wrestling event um, so that he can get enough money to buy a car to impress MJ, which I think is comic accurate. Um, and I love that that's in there because it's just objectively hilarious. Yes. <laughs> um, and after the the wrestling match the like owner of it refuses to pay him and then he gets robbed and the robber is like running past him and he peter parker could clearly easily stop him but he does not because that guy just gypped him and the guy is like what's the matter with you you could have stopped him and toby mcguire is like i missed the part where that's my problem which is so Great, because that's such a kind of New York mm -hmm. perception is that 
I'm on my own. I'm looking out for me kind of thing. But it immediately becomes his problem because that Robert goes and kills Uncle Ben, which they retcon in the third one, but whatever. Um, So that changes Peter Parker's whole idea about who he is and what his duty is as Spider-Man. And he realizes that like he has to look out for other people and he becomes your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And it's that transition moment between I'm looking out for me, I'm an individual in New York, whatever, that, that kind of like take care of my own mentality to, oh, my own is all of Manhattan. It's all of the people I live with and my neighbors and my community. And that is something that's really important throughout the film. Um, especially at the end. A bit more on plot, there's uh, this struggle between the private and public sector um, with the Oscorp, which is Willem Dafoe's um, corporation. He's a scientist. He makes the Green Goblin kind of formula and um, becomes the villain and starts murdering his partners because they're trying to um, push him out of the business. So there's a lot of this kind of um, push and pull between grant funding and uh, kind of government oversight over his, his corporation, which is again, kind of hallmark of, of 80s New York. Mm. Um, so it's interesting in this film as a kind of holdover And it's also like clearly filmed on a set. Like there's a really bad scene where he blows up a balcony and he, Willem Dafoe like lobs a grenade at his son, James Franco, which is just great. It's a great film. I love this one. So good. There's also like a world unity festival where Macy Gray is playing or singing. And it's so 2002. It's fantastic. Um, On the news behind uh, Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson, who is played perfectly by uh, J.K. Simmons. On the TV behind him in his office, there's a uh, news banner that reads U.S. AIDS record and is like an update on on what's happening with the AIDS epidemic in Mm -hmm. 2002, which is very interesting from a history perspective. So there's so much kind of like quintessential New Yorkness in this film when when Peter Parker or Spider-Man actually is uh, becoming more popular and people are kind of figuring out who he is, they have these scenes of people and papers like flashing across the scene and like interviews with people who are talking about Spider-Man and there's like this folksy guitar player singing about Spider-Man in the subway. It's just extremely New York. <laughs> and by the end of the film, you get the uh, final battle between... Uh, Green Goblin and Spider-Man and Green Goblin has said to him before he says in spite of everything you've done for them they will hate you here's the truth there are eight million people in this city and those teeming masses exist for the sole purpose of lifting the few exceptional people onto their shoulders and that is the villain's idea of what New York is it's just people who don't matter and a very small few who do and who make things exceptional for the rest of the the teeming masses. And Spider-Man really, he he objects to this a lot. And in their final fight, he's 
working so hard to save this um, like tram car of children that's, that, that's about to fall into the river and MJ, who's played terribly by Kirsten Dunst, by the way. Um, and these New Yorkers on the bridge above him get involved in a fight with the, the supervillain Green Goblin and they're throwing bricks at him and like rocks and whatever they can get on the bridge and they're yelling out like I got something for you and like peak New York accents it's great and one says you mess with the spider you mess with New York and another says you mess with one of us you mess with all of us yeah. and all of that is such this this New York spirit that we've already mentioned before and it's so significant and the reason I chose this one is because it came out in 2002 and this wasn't um, as much of a scene as it would have been before because this film was in post-production when 9-11 happened in September 2001 and uh, Sam Raimi has said that they had to reshoot some things. They had to change things about the film because in all of the promotional materials, there was, um, you could see the Twin Towers in Spider-Man's eyes on his mask. And there was a trailer that had a helicopter caught in a web between the, the Twin Towers. So they had to change all of that. And Sam Raimi said that that was a scene that featured in the film. Um, and they took it out for, for the actual theatrical release of it and ramped up the kind of New York spirit in it of the community and people coming together um, in this way. So I think it's a very perfect kind of New York film. And I also think it's the best representation of New York in a Spider-Man film and in any comic film really um, that I can think of offhand at least. Um, the, the new ones, homecoming really does not the tom holland one i think new york is just a set piece there i don't think that new york has a character in um homecoming yep. very at least very far away from as much as a, of a character as it plays in this 2002 one and um into the spider-verse was another one i definitely could have chosen but i think I don't know, I think this one captures just post 9-11 New York so well and the move into 21st century New York that we now see today um, in all sorts of media and just in New York. Um, I think this one's, this one's really a, a good one for that. Yeah, I think it's a perfect choice. I think it, it, it's a really smart choice and was one I'd considered um, before I ultimately went with um, Ghostbusters, but uh, I think this is much more New York than Ghostbusters, like the mm. spirit of the people. And of course, it's so important, you know, as you said, Bon, with the post 9-11 um, events and the, the community coming together. But I, I watched it for the I watched it a couple of nights ago for the, probably the first time in about 15 years. And so uh, I kind of came at it again with fresh eyes. And there, there were a few things that stuck out. One was the Macy Gray thing, which I felt like that was... <laughs> sort of transported in from another dimension i couldn't quite yes. believe i was seeing that uh the other element was they almost like we refer to travis bickle as god's lonely man i think god's lonely man is actually peter parker in this spider-man film like he is so picked on he is so like 
outset from society like i would not i would not be upset if he just started talking in the mirror to himself because like everyone is just like beating him up and bullying him and there's constant scenes of him missing the bus and everyone like ah you suck and then like him having to chase after the bus and just like things failing not for him and it's it was just like kind of constant like him getting dunked on and i I didn't remember it being quite so strong and you have the the scene in the the high school where he's got the fight and he's he's kind of beating up the other kid who must be like he must be like 47 or something that kid when he when he was (laughs) when he was having the fight with peter parker i mean it did look like hello fellow kids kind of stuff like it was yes I mean, they're all clearly, clearly <laughs> in their late twenties. <laughs> so that that was funny. Um, I, I'm really glad that we we picked a, a 21st century film because you know everything we we picked up until now was the 20th century. So I think it's important that we cover that. And um, I, I, Spider Man is, I think, the most important New York superhero. He's the he's the one most on the uh-huh. ground. He he's the one who's. You know, Metropolis for for Superman is kind of like a stand-in for New York. So you could almost see, you know, New York in, in the Metropolis that's there, or even Gotham City to some extent. Uh, but 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 I think for me, Spider-Man is the the classic New York superhero. He he's he's the one on the ground. He's the one communicating um, with the people. He's actually just like saving people's lives, and which, which seems like. A kind of small change in comparison to some of the stuff we get later on with superhero films where everyone's trying to catch nuclear bombs and you know trying to do things whereas even in some of the, the like the tom holland films it's still like him giving directions to people and him like c- catching people's like bicycles that have been stolen and that kind of thing and so, so it feels very much boots on the ground for for spider-man yeah. and in this 2002 version you know, you, you as you already highlighted, Vaughn, you, you get the scenes of the New Yorkers with the the paper sort of flashing through about, you know, uh, you know, some people think he's good, some people think he's bad. And so you get this impression of what real New Yorkers, quote unquote, think of him. And then obviously the bridge scene where the, the people are, are throwing bricks at the uh, the goblin and he's um, he <laughs> well, you can't see his face because he's got the mask on, but I imagine he's probably amused by these working class mm-hmm. people uh rising up against the the green goblin but yeah i, th- I yeah. think it's an excellent choice and i think it's um I'm, I'm really glad a we picked a 21st century film and i'm really glad we actually picked spider-man in particular because i think he he's really important to the new york identity in, in media um toby have you got any thoughts on spider-man no, no I, I really enjoy it spider-man i really enjoyed watching it again i, I do think um as vaughn said um, there's this idea um, with um, Uncle Ben, the, the idea that great power comes with great responsibility, right? And I think they take it too far with um, uh, his relationship, with deciding not to go into a relationship because um, she's going to be, you know, threatened by um, his villains and stuff like that. But uh, I, I do think it's very different from other superhero movies. Uh, even Tom Cruise's superhero in, in a sense, or even like the Incredibles, where I think Brad Bird is trying to say that the society needs super talented people who have powers and the villain hates uh, in, in the Incredibles. He hates the fact that 
there are talented people who have these kind of powers and uh, he wants to bring them down. But mm-hmm. in Spider-Man, it's a sort of like uh, the Green Goblin is almost like a, a Nietzschean guy. He's like, well, these 8 million people are here to raise some people up, you know, to raise us uh, special people up, whether it's Oscorp or the Green Goblin himself. And um, heroes are special people and they should be apart from the community, but Spider-Man is part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Vaughn, have you got anything else to add on the on Spider-Man before we, we close up on it? Um, yeah, um, I could talk about this forever, but to keep it short, I think it, I'm, I really wanted to pick a comic representation because I think the public imaginary of New York is such a huge mm-hmm. part of, of depicting New York on film, of kind of meeting audience expectations, whether it's based on a comic book or real life or what have you. Um, so I agree with you that, that it was very important, but just on one thing that you said that Superman has Metropolis and Batman has Gotham and they're both kind of stand-ins for New York, but I think they're very specific types of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I feel like I'm saying this the whole time, but New York's never one thing at one time. Gotham is, and Metropolis okay. is. They're two perceptions of New York, whereas Spider-Man's New York is all of it at once. Yeah, I yeah, it's, it's I, I, yeah, I played a Spider-Man video game, Spider-Man 2, for years, and you, you, know, you go off of uh, like a tower, a big tower, you jump mm-hmm. off. And you'd be in a different community, mm-hmm. and if you jumped yeah. off a different tower, you'd be in a different community. It's 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 there's holistic. nooks and crannies. It's it's sequestered. It's it's holistic. It's it's the whole thing really. And and he's there, and he bumps into people's very very different stories, mm-hmm. unlike say uh, Gotham, which is like you know like mm-hmm. it's crime risen and it's um, fixating on a particular part of like even the Joker movie. Uh, one of the criticisms was that although it's supposed to be allegorical, like it's really going back to the seventies to make this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. But with uh, Spider-Man, it, there's a sort of evergreen idea of New York as these yeah. these multiple communities that that can be accessed by Spy- Spider-Man. Absolutely, and I think that kind of comes full circle to what we were saying at the start when. We were, we were describing what we think of New York on film. And I was saying about exactly to your point, Vaughn, about New York is never just one thing. And for that, that's true for, for the New York of Spider-Man. And there are so many stories to tell, you know, and Spider-Man is able to kind of move between the different worlds within New York. Now, obviously he's not, you know, telling documentaries of Paris is burning or anything, but mm-hmm. he is at least able to, to move between say that, you know, the Manhattan or, you know, the towers that they are compared to say the kind of the bodegas of Queens or, you know, whatever the case may be, depending on the Spider-Man film. And I think into this, into the Spider-Verse was a really good example of, of feeling like you're in a uh, various parts of New York. And yeah. I think that was a, as you have been highlighting, there's never just one New York. And I think Spider-Man is, was a really smart pick for, for showing that. Thanks. Thanks. I agree. <laughs>
Cool. Okay. Well, we're about 37 hours into this podcast now. Yes. So, we, yes, <laughs> we should probably uh, close up uh, shortly. Mm-hmm. But uh, before I do, is there anything you guys just want to say very, very quickly uh, on <laughs> New York on film? Uh, maybe I should give you 30 seconds or something before we, we close up and then we can just point towards our, our next episode after that. So any, any final words um, from, from you, Toby, first? I think with New York on, on, on film, there is a stylistic New York on film. And I think you, you do get it in the, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Um, and, and I do think that Spider-Man is a really good example of a sort of broader idea of New York. But I don't know if since the, the 21st century, if New York is being drained of its identity or, or its perceived mm-hmm. identity now. And does it, you know, it, has it become like a metropolis where you could just put it on film and, um, you know, the story happens irrespective of whatever the city is uh, do New Yorkers feel like that? Do they feel like they're losing their identity? Especially because the accents that used to populate New York become collapsed, maybe because of the the trend westward in the in the culture. And um, you know, you you have someone like Bernie Sanders, but people don't really sound like Bernie Sanders anymore. And and is it is there a sense that there was a New York a New York on film because? New York in its history wasn't always on film. I mean, New York has a history, at least a, a sort of Anglo history stretching, you know, four centuries, right? Mm-hmm. And um, New, New York, uh, the ideas of New York that we're sort of uh, associated, we, we understand or can pick up really easily, sort of come out of the 19th century, this uh, giant melting pot, and then New York is put on film in the decades afterwards and and so but is there a sense that that new york on film is a stylized idea or is it an evergreen idea that new york still will still emerge with its identity on film and and i don't i'm not sure i don't know you know are, are there places in time that can be described by certain things and then they change and they're not that 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 thing anymore but that thing stands, you know, above other things as being what it was. I don't know, and and, and um, I don't. I don't. It's a question that's really difficult to answer. But I think in the collapsing of the American experience, you know, the franchising of corporations and um, stores and um, supermarkets and the collapsing of the accents the uh, harmonizing of the american experience does do can city still reflect something unique whether even if it's a multiplicity of unique experiences but it hinged to uh, a few things that can be generalized as like an, an identity i don't know but I, I do think that for, for many of the films that we, we, we've, we've talked about, 
showing all the way through rear window to the Spider-Man that that can't can be identified. But I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think it. Um, I'll just say my piece, and then Bon, you can close this out on on final mm. thoughts. Um, I was thinking about twenty first century films because um, obviously I, I didn't pick any, partly because I, I obviously didn't grow up on them, so I didn't have the same connection. And I, I was trying to think about you know this post nine eleven world, and you've got um, kind of the I guess post pandemic world now. There continue to be a lot of white New York films over the last twenty years. So we have films like The Intern. I just watched An American Pickle um, the other day. You've got Margin Call, The Big Short. Um, there's uh, Marriage Story, Birdman. Both of those uh, set around Broadway. You've got Francis Ha, which is the, the sort of um, young hip. Um, New York of you know wannabe um, dancers and uh, publishers and that kind of thing, and so I, I I am trying to I guess figure out for myself whether or not we we still have that identity and what that identity means and whether or not we are we were sort of in, in in an odd period where we were sort of a transition between other things. You got a, a film like uh, King of Staten Island, which it's kind of a post nine post nine eleven film in a sense because the in the story that the main character his his dad died in a fire on staten island but uh, as a fire uh, fire officer um but actually in, in real life the, the actor his dad died on 9-11 actually fighting fighting the fires and the, the things that happened at the twin towers and so we are starting to see the stories of of of, of the kids of you know the people who who, who died on nine eleven. And so I I wonder whether or not there'll be a reevaluation of New York by a younger generation for the twenty first century, and um or whether or not we're still just going to see you know story. I mean, film like Margin Call, which was to do with the economic collapse, uh, uh, um, in two thousand eight and, and that period in time. So are we just still going to see? Are we going to see like pockets of films and telling different stories sprinkled in with the, the big blockbusters of, of, of an Avengers or an a Spider-Man? Um, the cinema is such an, in such an odd place compared to what it was previously, not only with the corporations being, you know, it's all about IP and, you know, there are fewer films being made than of the type of a, of a Serpico or, or a, t- a taxi driver or a rear window even than there was previously. And even now we have the whole debate about, you know, are cinemas going to be open and how, how does that change the films that, that get made? So I, I guess trying to summarize my own thoughts, we, we've talked a lot about sort of a 50 or 60 year period. And we only just touched upon the 21st century and I guess I'm still trying to get my head around what New York on film means for the 21st century beyond these oddly specific, often very white stories of things like An American Pickle or The Intern or the Noah Baumbach films, which are kind of a continuation of Woody Allen or the financial films of like Margin Call and The Big Short or, or callback films like The Wolf of Wall Street and American Psycho. So... I'm yeah. I'm I'm very much trying to wrap my head around about what does the 21st century New York on film mean, and can we 
categorize it and pull together narratives the, the way we've done in the 20th century. And just before Vaughan goes, I'd like to say that you've got uh, Woody Allen, who so, someone we didn't mention on this um, mm. podcast, but he's made many New York films, many films about even Manhattan. You know, I love Manhattan. It's like, you know, the, it's how they start. Uh, that's how this even starts the movie, you know. Yeah, and then he, he idolized he, Manhattan. All I, yeah, I, 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 I idolized Manhattan, you know. All out of proportion, yeah. All yeah, all out of proportion. It's a, it's a poetic, you know, um, oration about the, 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 the city. And, uh, and many of his films have come to represent the city. And then if you take Woody Allen's life, making films since the 1960s, and Martin Scorsese, who's been making films since the 1960s, can New York on film escape them when they die? Can it escape them? Can new auteurs rise? Or is the fact that the nature of the industry, the collapsing of the New York experience into a broader American experience, will it always be that those people come to be identified with New York on film? Um, and, and is there a future for that kind of you know, city-based, unique, uh, natural, uh, timely pieces of movies that emerge and um, encapsulate what New York is in the 21st century in a way that stands the test of, 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 of time. Because I, I, I think it's important. There's always going to be movies made in the city. But can they be sort of edited into our minds? Is Oh, yeah, that's, that's mm -hmm. New York on film, you know? Yeah. And what's interesting is that Manhattan starts with that voiceover and it's actually the main character that he's writing this for is, you know, he's romanticizing New York out of, all out of proportion. And in his head, he still see New York in black and white. And it's the 19, it's the New York of like the 1930s and 40s and 50s that, uh, you know, Woody Allen would have grown up either seeing or hearing about. And so for a, someone making a film in the late 70s, he's can't get new york out of his head as it was and now we're asking a legitimate question of will new york will new filmmakers be able to get the woody allen and the martin scorsese new york out of their heads to tell their own story and you would say the likelihood is yes because these stories always come along but at the same time the film industry has changed and sort of devolved so much in, in some extent because of the stories were that are being allowed to be told on film these days there is a legitimate question of will we will we get that next generation? Sorry, Vaughn, we've completely eaten into your time. On you go. No, that's it's all really fascinating, and I'm really thinking about it in terms. I had like a quick snappy joke to make, but now you guys are making me think. And <laughs> <laughs> but please, it's if you want to end on the joke, if you wish that, that's fine. But please, just talk. No, no, it's fine. No, um, it's just really interesting because. As as you say, Hollywood is is changing so much to the point that Hollywood isn't even necessarily in California anymore. Hollywood's an idea more than a place, and it's it's affected by so many different things, which I could talk about forever, but I promise I won't. <laughs> it, and yeah, I'm I'm really. I'm really unsure of where where New York's character on film is going to go from here. But what I will say is that something we've talked about throughout this whole episode is that New York 
is a multiplicity of things. It's multidimensional at all times, and it is constantly reevaluating its image um, and recreating itself and rehabilitating and investing in itself in various ways. Um, depending on which communities are doing the investing, is it the financial district pumping money back in and buying up cultural sectors? Is it the mayor um, working towards housing uh, renewal? Is it minority communities making an economy and living space for themselves that uh, and investing in themselves power to the people? Um, there, there's constantly someone working on the image of New York in reality and also on screen. So I think, I think it's a really difficult thing to say and retrospect will absolutely give us a better answer. I think if you were in New York in 1973, you, you may not have been able to tell like mm -hmm. a specific Hollywood change is happening at the moment. Maybe you could have with Serpico, but I do think retrospect will help us a bit to decide if the 21st century can capture a, a, any sort of character for New York New York, um, and if it is representational of what New York actually is and a live, lived experience therein. Um, but at the moment, I don't know. Absolutely. So I think that's a really good question. And we shall wait and see. Um, right. We have managed to fit this in within like roughly three hours. So good job, us. Um, Finally, my three hour New York epic. I mean, yes, so, yes. you really yeah. good for me. Man. You are the Sergio Leone of the <laughs> podcast. Uh, yeah. um, it's this was always going to be a, a, a bit of an epic because of New York itself is so massive, so full of mm -hmm. history and New York on film is so rich and full of character and full of history. We probably won't be going into three hours for each city, I imagine, but who knows? No. We'll, we'll, we'll no. see. New York is a kind of special case and it also allows us just to, to bed into the, this city on film idea. But mm -hmm. our, our next film, we are we are staying more on the east side of America, aren't we, Vaughn? Do you want to introduce what 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 which city is is going to be our next victim for on the on film series we are shipping up to boston <gasps> and i'm so excited i cannot wait i think we're all looking forward to seeing how your accent may shift during that my, as well. my second home oh i will try not to do the accent that's not attractive nobody needs that i think but it's I a can't very wait. attractive accent i mean i honestly love many the women accent. who are from there you know it's, I mean, come <laughs> uh fantastic we did kind of say that um yeah we if we if we come up with nine films that might there only might be nine films <laughs> to actually talk about so um yes a, a bit of a difference in, in just the volume of, of, of films we can talk about and we will mm -hmm. potentially have a uh have a friend of the show joining us as well to talk about um, to talk about Boston as well. So um, that that'll be that'll be fun, um, right? Toby, Vaughn, um, this has been an epic, but it was a very enjoyable and I think a very uh, mm. constructive talk for three hours. As much as um, as insightful as you can get about talking about films on uh, on one particular uh, city, I thought I thought today was a lot of fun. So so thanks for thanks for joining me. You're welcome.
Good. Um, <laughs> uh, thank, thank you, Simon. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, from was it Travis Bickle and Lula May, whoever, whoever, or whichever characters yeah. they may be. Uh, thank, <laughs> thank you to Toby and Vaughn for, for joining me. Um, thank you guys for listening. If you've actually made it all the way through to the end, and uh, like said, yes, well done to you. We will have an, another episode in the near future, which we uh, are aiming to be the, the Boston on film series. Um, so, uh, yes, fantastic. Um, right, take care. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Bye. Bye.